You're listening to Software Unscripted. I'm your host, Richard Feldman. Today I'm talking with Casey Muratori, a game engine programmer who's known for coming up with immediate mode GUIs, for his Twitch series Handmade Hero, where he scratch builds a game on stream, and most recently for his performance-aware programming course, which I've personally been enjoying a great deal. We talk about performance and the programming culture around it, how memory safety relates to program architecture, what web development can learn from game development, and even some concrete improvements that could be made to, you guessed it, CSS. And now, things web devs can learn from game devs. All right, Casey, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. So I heard you on a different podcast at some point, and you were basically making the point that CSS is pretty difficult. It's not something that beginners maybe should be faced with. And you made a really interesting observation that I, for some reason I've never heard anyone make this, because you were like, it's really easy to center something. Yeah, add half the distance that you're, you know, you want to mention, then subtract half the width of the thing you want to center. That's it. Yeah. That's, that's how you center something. And I was like, yeah, you know, that's how I used to do it back before I got into web development. Why doesn't everybody do that? And that led me to wonder, is that actually how everybody does it in the games world, which you're very familiar with? Because I know like games often have a lot of UIs that are pretty similar to the stuff that websites have. You have like character creation screen or settings page or something like that. You've got sliders and scroll bars and stuff. Do people just do the math themselves and that's it? That's the layout system? It depends. There's a lot of different ways that people do it. Certainly, traditionally, it was always done by hand that way. And the reason it's not done that way as much anymore is largely because of web. So now it happens as teams get larger and you try to have more, you know, Conway's Law gets in there a little more and you try to have sort of more separation where you're like, okay, There's this whole front-end thing that has to happen, and we don't want the people who are working on the main core stuff, like this kind of gameplay, to be dealing with that. We're trying to separate that out because, you know, we're just trying to get work done faster and whatever. They look for ways to make those things be... Outsourcing is the wrong word because you're still having people do it in-house. But you're trying to move them into some other thing. Like, is there a package we can buy where an artist can author this UI so it'll look nicer, where designers can do it because they're the ones thinking about what these menus actually have in them, et cetera, et cetera. And so nowadays, you see people using lots of different things. People will use like Adobe Flash was very common. I think it's called Adobe Animate now. So for a long time, there was an entire product too, actually, a scale form. And Rad had one called Iggy that their whole thing was they were just like fast flash runtimes so that artists who could make UIs would make them in, uh, you know, Flash. Again, now it's not called Adobe Animate now, but it was Flash back then. And then run them in game as a UI. And it was basically like a better runtime for that than the Adobe Flash runtime. So you see a lot of that sort of thing happening now. So the answer to how do people make front ends in games now is all over the map. Oftentimes, they will be using some off-the-shelf tools to try to enable designers and artists to be more involved in the process. Sometimes they have their own tools that they've written for this as well. It's really variable. And that's kind of par for the course. That's not specific to UI. You will see the exact same thing in almost everything else that happens with games. Some people make their own level editors. Some people use Maya. Some people use 3D Studio Max. Some people have, you know, X or Y or Z. You know, that's just how it goes. And it's very organic that way. Interesting. Yeah, I remember reading an article about some game that came out recently and all the performance problems that happened in it. And one of the things they mentioned was that even the title screen was pretty laggy. And in the article, I I was blown away to hear that apparently people use literal React to make title screens for games now, like like the opening menu and stuff. Yes. This is 100% a leading question. But like, how do you personally feel about that trend? 
I mean, you know, I understand why it's happening. So it's not like I'm like, wow, that's really bizarre or anything like that. Because it happens for the exact same reasons it happens in web. You're trying to solve a problem you have. You want there to be a standardized way that someone can come in and work with these things. And so you reach for whatever is standard. What are designers working in nowadays? You know, they're working in things like Figma. They use things like Adobe Animate. They use things like that. And so, you know, how do you center something? They're not thinking about math at all. To circle back to your original question, I'm sorry to dodge question, but how do I feel about this? I mean, obviously, I don't feel good about any of these things. But I mean, you know, I understand where they come from. The job of the people who made CSS or the people who made React or any of those things, the job was to make it so that you could take the intent of somebody who's sitting down and doesn't know the math to center something to be able to center something. And not just center something, but to correctly explain the typographic constraints that they were envisioning when they thought of this design. Mm -hmm. I can't speak specifically to React because unlike CSS, I haven't myself actually created something in React. But like CSS is an example of utterly failing across the board at that thing. You use the term difficult, but I wouldn't use that term. I'm sure driving an F1 car is difficult, but it's a very good car. CSS is just bad. There's a difference between difficult and bad. I would wager to say there are probably a large class of layout problems, like things that you could easily specify in math that you simply cannot represent in CSS correctly. You know, if you wanted to do it actually correctly and take into account the proper font metrics and everything so that it properly responded like it could if you had written the math, I have no doubt that there are entire categories of page designs that simply cannot exist because the only way to get them would be to fall back to like pixel or specific positioning that would break if you changed something like which font you were using or the page aspect ratio or whatever. I would be surprised if somebody was like, hey, what everybody is doing is they're doing their own arithmetic for these things. I'm going to make a WYSIWYG editor that outputs that. I would be shocked if somebody couldn't pull that off because they have pulled that off with these much more complicated systems like CSS. And I think Figma even generates React components, if I remember hearing about that right, mm -hmm. where there's a plugin or something. I think that's generally the idea behind those tools is that they're increasingly trying to output the app like with, without the back end, right? Yeah. I've written CSS layout engines before, meaning ones that output the CSS to try and get particular layouts. I've also written JavaScript layout engines before, meaning ones that bypass CSS and attempt to lay out a page by querying the browser for metrics about various pieces of text or imagery. I've done that one. When you do that, what you'll realize is nobody has ever thought this through at all. The underlying substrate, the W3C specs for these things, make it very difficult to write those things efficiently, if at all. It's much better today than it was when I last did one of these. When I last did one of these, there wasn't even a way to get the browser to tell you things about how it would have laid out text without actually creating things to lay out the text invisibly, querying them and hoping they came back correctly. Okay, that's true of me too, because I didn't actually know that you don't have to do that anymore. <laughs> My understanding was that there were now ways that you could do that in a different like I said, haven't done it again since then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So maybe not. But my understanding was they've added things, perhaps because I complained. I don't know. I talked to Mozilla about <laughs> this when I was doing it. I was like, guys, you need a thing to do this. Maybe they did it. I don't know. So there's a two-level problem. The first level problem is the substrate is awful. 
if you look at well-designed low-level substrates, there are things where people have thought through the basic operations that you need to be able to build high-performance, high-quality output. You're talking about things like graphics APIs in the modern era or something where it's like, wow, they've really done a lot of work to enable amazing stuff that they're doing here. It's like you can create these shaders that run on these triangle meshes and all of that stuff gets pipelined automatically on the GPU and compiled at that time. And it's like, and it runs Call of Duty, which is this amazing, like... Right. And then you've got something by the W3C that puts, you know, five paragraphs and an image on the page. It's slower and can't center the thing properly. When you look at the platforms like graphics, you had a lot of independent actors really doing innovative stuff for their own benefit. You had a lot of like NVIDIA, you know, super hardcore people doing stuff. You had AMD hardcore people doing stuff. You had Microsoft hardcore people doing stuff. You had all of these companies doing stuff. And then they kind of like would fight about it at a standards committee, but they all really knew what they were trying to do, right? They were all trying to get there and they were pushing really hard for it. And there was something on the line. They needed to sell cards next year that were faster than cards this year and looked better than cards this year. And if they didn't do that, their company goes away. Contrast that to W3C, you read the meeting notes, you see what they're working on. It's literally just a bunch of people sitting around who just, it doesn't matter. How right do you have to get the spec for image set? The answer is not at all. I mean, they didn't even run any tests. They just like, I don't know, I guess we'll just put some things in here. It's like, oh, should we have that be based on the actual size that the image is going to come in? Like, nah, we want to be able to start fetching before we actually lay out the page. So I guess we'll just make it based on something you have to type in. You're like, guys, there's nothing you can type in that says how big the image will be. You literally created a spec for speculative fetching dynamic resolution images, and you don't have the image resolution as the thing that it uses Things like that wouldn't fly in the GPU space because companies would go out of business. From that point forward, I don't even know if product like React deserves any criticism here. I haven't really studied it. But they're fundamentally working on top of a platform that makes it very hard to do good work. So if you were to look at React and decide that this isn't very good, it's too slow or it's buggy or whatever, I don't know. And I'm not saying that. I'm saying if you were to look at it, you would have to do some actual work to determine if that was even their fault. There might not have been a lot they could have done, really, given what they had to work with. So I think the problem, while it might be too level, like maybe things like React aren't very good compared to what they could be, that could be true. But I think you have to go one level deeper and just look at the fact that W3C has basically set everyone up to fail. Wow. So that's definitely not a perspective I hear a lot in the web world. Now, having said that, people complain about stuff all the time. Sure. But what I don't hear people say is, it's because the specs are bad. And I th- they are. Yeah. I think the reason for that is that the vast majority of web developers have no basis for comparison. It's not like they've also had personal familiarity with graphics APIs, for example, like low-level. I mean, some do, for sure. But I think for the most part, there's just sort of like a, well, that's just the way the world is in the same way that I think even people who do low-level software development are kind of like, well, whatever Intel and AMD and, and, and I guess now Apple come out with, that's kind of you know the processors we're working with. And what do you mean you could design a better processor? That's like the lowest fundamental thing. And I don't right. scratch the surface below that. So I'd like to continue with the analogy you just used. So, you know, you look at a, a processor like one that comes out from Intel and AMD and you ask the question, could I design a better processor than this? Probably the answer is no. I mean, I don't think I could <laughs> because yeah. they are very, very good at it, right? Between Apple, AMD and Intel, they tend to, one of them tends to put out a chip that is really baller at any given particular time, right? So I'm not generally sitting around going, well, if I were in charge 
oh boy, the chip I would produce, right? Yeah. But I think that kind of misses the larger point, which is if I was some kind of amazing chip designer and I just knew better than Intel and AMD and Apple, I'm just that good. My thinking is like, well, I'm going to make a processor that's 20% faster than their processors or something. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. At no time were you thinking, I'm going to be making a chip that can actually do a divide. But that's where we're at with W3C. If you look at things like CSS, which is ostensibly a layout language, they at no time have even attempted to demonstrate how you would take an arbitrary series of layout constraints and translate them programmatically into CSS. They've literally never thought of that as even a thing you were supposed to do. But if you were serious about designing a standard for layout, the first step of that would be to say that whatever we generate every year as our spec has to be effectively, quote-unquote, Turing-complete for layout. Just like a CPU that wasn't Turing-complete would not be sold, right? Like, that's not a thing. You would be like, oh, sorry, that class of problems that you can represent with a Turing machine, we can't run them on this new AMD Zen 5. How long would that press conference last? (laughs) But in W3C, that skates. They feel no obligation to demonstrate that any of their specs actually satisfy any abstract problem requirement. They literally just sit down and say, well, here's some layout commands. Good luck, guys. And call it a day. In fairness, you can much more easily than you used to be able to horizontally and vertically center something using Flexbox. But I get the impression that there's not really an effort to say this layout engine should be able to essentially express anything that people can come up with. Yes, because the reason that people complain about centering is not because that is some fundamental thing that lets you know that your layout language supports the true meaning of layout. It just happens to be something that we know everyone's going to do. In every web page, something will be centered at some point, probably. And so the reason everyone complains about centering is not because of centering. It's because that's the first thing they probably hit where they're like, wait, this should be easy. And it was not, right? Yeah. Them fixing centering, which, by the way, I would dispute because I don't think they really have. They fixed some simple kinds of centering, other more complicated kinds of centering that might come up in between elements on a page. They don't even have ideas for how to solve, let alone solutions for it. Like, center something between any two characters that show up on a web page. Sure, yeah. <laughs> okay? In a real layout language, that's pretty trivial. You just, and in fact, in your own code, is trivial. When you out, you just lay out that text, you remember the locations of the two characters, 0.5 times those two added together, and that's the center point. Anyone can do it, right? It, t- right. it takes no time at all in your own code to do this. In CSS, they'd be like, we will never probably have that feature, ever. Like, we will literally never have that, right? At best, maybe we will have something where you could put, like, anchor tags in between those two things, which won't really center it on the character. And then you could maybe use JavaScript to find out how big those characters were and re-offset it by half of that or something, right? Like, determining where points are, that's one turn complete thing. Determining where locations are. There should be a rich suite of tools for that. I can determine locations on characters. I can determine locations on the borders of things. I can determine locations on margins. I can determine locations of toolbar, right? Like all things. Determining locations and then ways to construct constraints out of those. That is what a layout language is. We've known this for 40 years, 50 arguably at this point, 
And like, that is what you should be working towards, but they're not. I thought about, wouldn't it be great if we could just go straight to the graphics card? And I was like, okay, well, how do we deal with things like measuring text in order to do layout of text? And like, oh, learn about harf buzz and whatnot. But now I know all the numbers of everything. Like I know exactly where everything is. I know how wide everything is. Mm -hmm. In fact, if I want to, I can go within each individual glyph and get the coordinates of those individual pieces as well. And it never occurred to me until you just said that, that like, the browser has to do all that work too. So why is none of that even possibly exposed? Like, it's one thing to say, you shouldn't need that for normal layouts, which depending on what layout you're making, maybe that is or isn't true. But it is kind of weird that all of that work is done and there's just no possible way to get at those calculations that are being done anyway by every browser. Right. And, you know, if you looked at it and said, well, they considered all these things and understood all of that, And then they did like some extensive work on it and determined that it would simply be too costly performance-wise to expose certain options. Mm -hmm. Very reasonable thing. But the opposite thing is that like they've never really looked at any of these things. Like they just keep piling more special purpose tools to try and hope that they cover some 80% case most of the time, right? Like, and it just doesn't make any sense because you're like, Well, I'll cite some things that I've seen recently. So supposedly, and I'm not sure if this is true, but supposedly I've heard that like there really isn't a way to make a compliant browser anymore. Like nobody even knows what that would be. Like if you wanted to start a new browser that would comply with all the W3C specifications, this is apparently like not even really possible to read them all. Right. So it's like you'd have to have like vast teams of people just reading the 13 million pages or whatever it is, right? And then somehow they would have to come together and think about how they're going to implement this, right? And you compare that to something, you know, like a shader language specification, which is able to create amazing, so many different shaders. You go on Shader Toy and you see all the things that people can do. They're amazing. They're far more impressive than any web page anyone has ever made running in a web page, right? (laughs) And the thing that's laying out that thing that uses the shading language can't do any of it, right? It can barely get the thing that shows the amazing shader to show up in the right place without text like overlaying it or not being able to see a button because it wasn't big enough or whatever, right? And it's just embarrassing, right? It should be very deeply embarrassing. No one cares. I don't know if no one cares, but I mean, certainly... Not a lot of people seem to care, or, no. or not a lot of people seem to be aware of this. Yeah. And on top of that, I mean, a thing that we talked about on a previous episode was you have like the web, which was designed for documents and is now used for all sorts of stuff that have nothing to do with documents, user interfaces, and whatnot. And because the web has gotten so popular and web development has gotten so widespread, you now have things like Electron where people are basically saying, well, here's how I'm going to make my native desktop UI. I'm going to take a use case that has nothing to do with documents. I'm going to work in terms of a language that's designed for documents ostensibly. You can debate whether or not they did a good job at that. Mm. But now you're going to take your UI, express it in terms of a document, even though it's not a document and wants nothing to do with documents, and then de-documentify it again to have Chromium, which you're shipping with your entire application, turn that back into (laughs) the instructions to the GPU. And that's, to me, like going back to the React comment, yeah, setting aside like the quality of React itself, what's weird to me about a game using React is more that in a domain that I think web development could and should learn a lot from in terms of like actually using the hardware and getting good performance, 
in that world, it's so weird that there's people who are working on the game engine who are doing these amazing things with hardware. But then the homepage is, we're going to use an abstraction on top of documents in order to turn something that's not a document into a document and then turn it back from a document into something that the engine people were just going straight to in the same project. And I get Conway's law. And and so, you know, the reasons for it make sense. We can talk about like trying to root cause those sorts of problems. But the bottom line is you have a certain amount of work to do on any given project. And let's just say we talk about the class of programmers in today's day and age who know, for example, how fast something could run. Just that. Yeah. If you ask them, like, how many numbers could a modern CPU add together? Like, would you have any way of computing that in a, like, take a period of time, in one second, how many numbers could a computer add together your 7950 or whatever you've got in your machine? The class of programmers who know how to compute that number, it's vanishingly small now, right? Yeah. So the vast majority of people who are working on things not only wouldn't necessarily know how to make good performance decisions or things like that, they also don't know how far off they are from making good performance decisions. Like, most people who boot up Electron don't know that Electron could be faster than it is. And that's not hypothetical when I say that. I, because I talk about performance... And people, of course, don't believe me because if you've never studied this thing, they don't. They just assume there is a reason. They're like, well, you don't understand. Text is very hard to render. I've heard this from so many people. I heard it from the Microsoft Windows terminal team when they were trying to tell me why the terminal was so slow, right? Yeah. Until I went and wrote the thing that showed that it can run at 7,000 frames a second, they didn't believe me. That is very typical, right? That is a very typical thing. And obviously, I'm very frustrated by those kind of things because I'm like, if you don't really understand all the internals of a CPU, you probably shouldn't be saying one way or the other. Like, if you don't know this stuff cold, you really have no business telling other people that text is hard. You reading a web page somewhere where someone at Google said text was hard or something like that does not make you qualified to speak on the topic of how fast text should render. It just doesn't. So it's frustrating, but it's more illustrative than frustrating. It shows you just how untethered from the reality of what computers do, we now are as an industry. So I would say most people on most projects do not know the potential. And because they don't know that lower level stuff, it's not unreasonable for them to somehow look at Call of Duty with smoke effects and bullets flying and realistic humans with lighting that's dynamic and buildings falling over and go, well, that must just be a much easier problem than Electron showing, like, these 15 words on a page. And also, the Call of Duty has a chat, which also has text in real time on top of all that, at 60 frames a second. Yeah. But because if you don't know, you don't know. When they say that, they're almost trying to be nice, in a way. They're trying to say, like, I don't want to believe that the people who made this thing were just really that bad at what they do the people who made, you know, W3C, basically, right, or whatever, I don't want to believe that these people were so bad at making a spec that somehow this degenerated to this thing here. Whereas the people who made the spec for what runs our graphics were just, like, really baller and in a totally different class. But that's what happened. That last point resonates with me in terms of how my mindset around this used to be. 
when I was a kid, I started programming games in like Quick Basic, then Visual Basic, and then I heard the pros use C++. I was like, I'm going to learn C++ in middle school. And I did, and I made a little role-playing game. And like the first time I hit a memory bug where I had like corrupted some memory and like I walked into the hmm. town in my RPG and the shopkeeper greeted me with just a bunch of memory garbage. And I was like, <laughs> how awesome. am I going to debug this? I have no idea. And I actually couldn't remember how I debugged it. I think what I did was I was like, well... Maybe if I go do a bunch of cleanups that I'd been procrastinating on, then it'll be easier to debug. And then after I did the cleanups, it didn't reproduce anymore. Yep, so I, you accidentally <laughs> fixed it. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I remember like after that experience thinking like, I don't know how other people do this. I feel like I got really lucky. They must just be wizards. And like people who make ah, games ah. professionally are just on a different level. There's something, they have different brains than I do. And I'm just not capable of doing that. Which now I'm like, no, I, I'm sure I could have done that if I'd like stuck with it. But that was like, in my mind, that like, yeah, they are on just a different level. Like, they're C++ programmers. Like, that's a different type of programming. I think in the same way that, again, going back to like the hardware analogy, it's like people who design circuits, they're just doing a fundamentally different thing than I'm doing. And when it comes to hardware, I think there's also probably more overlap than we know about. Like, Dan Liu has an excellent blog, and he talks about how he used to literally work on CPUs, not for one of the major companies, for like a smaller company. He talks about how like testing and verification was like this, like, the the Mm. most of the expense was (laughs) of Mm -hmm. like, but then he got into software, and he's like, there's more stuff in common. Software could learn a lot from hardware design. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I feel similarly about, like, yeah, people who program games are not fundamentally doing something different than what we're doing on the web. There's a different set of constraints, but I think the mindsets should be a lot closer than they are. And the mindset part, I think, is something that we can change. Like, there's, whatever, 13 million pages of spec. I would love to be optimistic that, like, hey, maybe we can just have a clean slate. There's some alternative thing that you can do in browsers. Maybe WebAssembly can get us there. I'm a very optimistic person, but I'm not that optimistic. But I do think there is an opportunity to change the culture around these things, around having some understanding of, like, okay, this is what's possible, and there are these different approaches that I could choose from for how to attack this problem. I'm going to default to the fastest one, and I'm going to set the bar high, for not doing the fastest thing. Like if there's going to be something that claims to have a big advantage, but it's significantly slower, A, I want to be actually aware of that and and like know what trade-off I'm making. Okay, small tangent. I love your course on performance-aware programming. Oh, thank you. I had already sort of gotten into like performance independently like a couple of years ago and well, kind of like low-level CPU stuff. There's this graph, you're probably familiar with it, where it sort of shows like approximately what are the different CPU counts of like nanoseconds-ish between different types of operations. So there's like a sure. NAT is, yeah. a NAT yeah. is yeah, about yeah, this yeah. much. And then, and I was like, whoa, a heap allocation is so much more than like, and then what are these different L1, L2, L3 cache misses? These are like way different. And then like a network request, it's like a gazillion times, a gazillion ads. I think that's the actual number. And that yeah, yeah. sort of blew my mind because I have a comp sci degree and I never knew that. Maybe this has changed because I was college a long time ago now, but back in like 2003, 2008, I never had a course the entire time where we like ran a benchmark. It was all theoretical. Oh, wow. It was never like at no point, and I'm sure this varies and hopefully today it's better, but I kind of suspect it isn't. It's probably worse, honestly. But like algorithms and data structures was just about like big O and that type of stuff. It was like, which like is totally useful to know, but like, we never talked about, and maybe back then, you know, the cache hierarchy was like less important than it is now. I don't know. But like, certainly today, it's really, really important. Yeah. <laughs> like, and I had no idea. I'm like, I, I had like 15 year career in web development, no idea about any of this stuff. 
in my mind, it was like low-level performance optimization means understanding what the JIT is doing in the browser. That's like the lowest of the low-level. Right. And when I say understanding what the JIT is doing, what I really mean is just like, well, it's going to make this type of thing faster than like this other type of thing it won't make faster. So do the first thing. We were like 70 some odd episodes in this podcast. I have never made like a public endorsement of somebody else's teaching stuff. I'm going to change that right now. Everybody should go watch your performance aware programming thing. It's like $9 a month. It's excellent. Why? Thank you. It's not just that I agree with what you're trying to do, which is to educate people about what can the hardware do. And like you do it, I think, in a very approachable way. But also, like, even as somebody who had spent a lot of time independently looking into this stuff, I learned stuff the first video one or two, you're like, check it out. Let's do instruction level parallelism and like watch that make the loop faster. Yes. I had heard of ILP, but all I could tell you about it is that it's like a thing that CPUs do. I knew about SIMD and I knew about various things around that, but like that specific thing, I was like, I had no idea that that could actually concretely make something faster. And you're like, watch, we're going to like make the body of the loop bigger and then it gets faster. Yes. And I was like, what? Like, <laughs> there's so many things <laughs> like that where it's like, how deep does this rabbit hole go? And how much have I for like my entire career just been like, not even where there was a rabbit hole there. Just like, no, that's a black box that other different categories of programmers work in. And honestly, going into that rabbit hole feels great. It feels like I'm able to do better quality work for understanding these things. And that's a cultural change I really want to see happen. It doesn't have to be this mysterious thing for wizards. It can be something that everybody actually understands. And depending on your domain, you may be able to apply that to different degrees or not. I love the title performance aware programming because I didn't even know that I wasn't aware of this stuff until like more than a decade into my career. And I wish that culturally that would change. Obviously, I agree with you. That's why I made that course called That Thing, (laughs) right? right? (laughs) And I guess what I would say there is awareness is really the biggest thing that's missing, too. Because what I tried to do, as you saw in the course, is I try to draw a distinction between optimization and awareness. And I think that awareness is really what we're lacking, not optimization. Because optimization is actually quite difficult and takes a long time. Even if you know, if you know and you are an expert, optimization still takes a long time, right? Yeah. And so I think it is not realistic until we have like, you know, the way better AI tools for trying tons of stuff or automated batch process things that we haven't invented yet or whatever that maybe someday we'll have that will make optimization kind of free to do or something. At the moment, it's very, very difficult to do those things, and it's not really on anyone's radar either. AI companies want to sell to the masses. They don't want to sell to the 13 people a year who optimize their software or whatever. So I try to draw a distinction between that process, which I think it is unrealistic to expect everyone to be doing, and awareness, which I think everyone could do. If you spend a couple hours a week for a year learning how CPUs and GPUs and those sorts of things work, you will just understand way better how slow your code is and the simple things you could probably do to make it faster. Yeah. You don't have to optimize it. You just have to stop making decisions unaware of their performance implications and choose other things that you just didn't realize would make a big difference. And so what I try to do in the course, right, is take people through what we do when we do real optimization, so you can see all the pieces. And at the end, we're like, okay, you've seen it once, you get what all the things are that come into play here. Now you just have to be aware of them. If you're setting yourself up for failure, 
then you're going to have all these cascading costs. You're going to make all these things worse. And you'll also now know if I do need to optimize this or I need to hire someone to optimize it, you're setting them up for success. Like, that's also crucial because hotspot engineering doesn't really work unless everyone pre-knew how to set up the hotspots so that they could be crushed, right? That's kind of a, a common myth. So yeah, I agree with all of that. And awareness is really the thing that I want people to get because I don't think it's as hard. Becoming a really world-class optimizer, that's a lot of experience and a lot of practice. Just going through the process once and now knowing what all the things are, that's not hard. And I think everyone could do it. What I would love to see as part of a cultural shift is recalibrating what is considered sort of fine. Right. Do you know about N plus one queries? Is that a thing on your radar? I don't think I've heard that term. Oh, no. All right. Do you know about ORMs? I don't think so. What does it stand for? So ORM is Object Relational Mapper. I know what a relational database is. Does that help? Okay. Yes. Okay. So I'm about to turn over a rock in web development okay. world that you're probably not going to be happy about. I'm ready for it. So relational databases, sure, you got like MySQL, Postgres, whatever, okay. and you write SQL strings to query them. Yep. There is a very popular alternative to writing raw SQL strings. Actually, there's two. One is something that I consider to be pretty reasonable, which is a query builder. The idea behind a query builder is basically, maybe it comes up in my code base a lot of times that I want slight variations on these things. I'm like, I want this query, but I want to add a little extra where clause here because I want to filter it by a certain thing. Or I want to mm -hmm. add an order by because I want to sort. And just doing that with string interpolation or something like that can be pretty annoying as you get more and more of these different variations. So a query builder is basically... Let me just make a little data structure. It could be just like a struct or something. And I just want to say, okay, I'm going to select from this. I'm going to do this and that. And then it kind of builds the string and then sends that to the database. Okay, okay, wait. It builds the string instead of just sending the already binary encoded representation of the query to the database so it doesn't have to parse it? Yes. I was wondering if you would pick up Please on that. Please tell me that's a joke. Not only is that not a joke, but that is the performant one. Oh, Lord. The ORM is the less performant one. Okay. I actually don't know why that's not more of a thing. I assume the answer is that databases take so much time to execute the queries that parsing is considered negligible because you're going to be waiting multiple milliseconds anyway. And so parsing the query just takes so little time. Yeah, and because there's never been any string escaping bugs, so we wouldn't <laughs> want to fix those while we were at it. Strings are bad for many reasons and performance is but one. But continue. Very fair point. All right. So an ORM is much more ambitious than a query builder. Mm. Its job is to try to give you an object-oriented feel when accessing your relational database instead of mm -hmm. using a query builder. Okay. So the idea is that you're not even thinking in terms of the SQL, but it's like you're going to make classes and objects and you'll have getters and setters. And when you change the thing of the object, it will just magically go and build a query on the fly out of the structure of your object and then go update the database. This includes, by the way, mm -hmm. if the object has references to other objects, mm -hmm. it'll include those in the queries and go and do that. Mm -hmm. N plus one query is what happens when you say, okay, I've got my object here, and let's say it is a list of users. And I am just going to go iterate over my list of users in a for loop, like I do all the time. Mm -hmm. And what's actually happening there, because the point of the ORM is to make you feel like you're writing normal object-oriented code, is that it will go and run a query to go get all the users. And then it will just load all of those rows into memory. Mm -hmm. And then in each step of the loop, it will on the fly construct a different SQL query for every single user that you're updating because you're mutating them in place. Mm. You're saying like, I don't know, capitalize their username or something. Mm. And then every single iteration of the loop, it's running another entire database query, which is like a TCP round trip, parsing, oh my lord, query planning, everything like that. It's called N plus one because you have 
n queries where n is the body of the loop plus one for yeah. the initial query to yeah. get to load all the records right, in the memory. Of all of this stuff could be done, generally speaking. You can replace an n plus one usually with one, right. and everything will be astronomically faster. Right. N plus ones are a very common thing that happens in ORMs to the point where people have written tools to try to detect them automatically in your code base, like in your tests, because they just very easily come up. But the prevailing view is that ORMs are at least reasonable and possibly great. I mean, yeah, like I said, I think you were expecting me more surprised than I was, but that sounds par for the course. It has a lot of things in it that are very common, right? So one of the things that you learn in the performance aware programming course, one of the things we're talking about right now in the course, is the concept of dependency chains. Yep. And uh, the biggest problem that we typically see in performance unawareness is people not realizing that they've created what are effectively false dependency chains. So things where you are forcing the computer to do one thing at a time so it cannot do many things at a time, right? Mm -hmm. And so the thing you're describing, it sounds to me like what you are forcing the computer to now do is inside this for loop, every iteration of the loop is going to wait for a packet to come back from the server to give it the object that it needs. Yes. So that it can do the operation and then generate another packet. It then also has to wait for the operation that will modify that object or something like this, right? That is definitely part of the problem. And then another compounding thing on top of that is you're loading all of the records from the database into memory just in order to one at a time write them back. N can be quite large depending on your data set. And so you're like, over this TCP connection, go give me every single user record and all of their data, and then I'll iterate over those and one at a time write them back instead of writing one query that says, you already have all that in your memory, hopefully. Just go do these updates, and then it'll figure out how to do that. Oh, sure. But I'm just saying, like, they also then managed to make it so that they took the slowest possible thing, which is a round trip to a server, and they gated the speed of their for loop on that thing. Yeah. Now, those user updates were presumably independent, meaning I didn't have to update them in order. I could have updated them all at the same time, right? Usually, yeah. So they took their for loop and they did the thing that you never want to do, which is to make every iteration of a loop depend on the slowest possible thing your computer could do, thereby slowing the machine down to n times its slowest operation, right? Yeah. I would actually say you were objecting to the query all n things or the oh one part of that where we ask for all the things and they come back. I'd actually say positive. Usually you see people are just, they only do the like, if I have to do 50 things, I do 50 queries, right? So like at least someone asked for something in bulk for once. <laughs> I do definitely have a lot of empathy for people who are like, new to programming, new to the industry, quite possibly. And they're like, I learned about a for loop and I learned about mutating things in a for loop to make updates. Right. And like, here's the system that tells me how to do that. Okay, I understand how to solve my problem. And it feels like if you didn't have access to that, it might be more difficult for you to achieve what you're trying to achieve because you have to learn a different language, maybe SQL. The unfortunate thing is that the ORMs sort of give you a false sense of security around that learning curve, where it's like, you don't have to learn something new, you just need to learn that this will just take care of the persistence for you. Yeah. But it's not the same thing as the other things you're doing. It's visually similar to what you're doing, but under the hood, it's doing something very, very different. And I think that learning step shouldn't be skipped. Well, I would draw a distinction, and I've said this many times, so I apologize for repeating myself, but I see the difference as we have trained an entire generation of programmers at this point now, possibly multiple, 
that programming is about programming a language, not about programming a computer. Mm. Most programmers in the 70s and 80s understood they were programming a computer because you couldn't really avoid it, right? You probably couldn't get the computer to do much of anything if you didn't sort of understand it, right? Yeah. So many people were confronted with that. Not all, but many. Sure. As computers get faster and software standards get lower, somehow, it is a mass market phenomenon now, right? Grandma doesn't know that her recipe site shouldn't take a minute and 30 seconds to actually like finally load that thing that says half a teaspoon of coriander or whatever, right? She doesn't know that. So she's not sitting there going, what the hell? But back in, you know, 70s and 80s, people were computer enthusiasts. A lot of people you were selling to, like they kind of like expected this thing to do something and uh, the hardware is very primitive. So you fall off that understanding curve and you're kind of rapidly in something you can't even sell. Nowadays, we've gotten to the point where I think people just think of programming in a language. So what they think of as programming is, is the thing that I see on my screen relatively easy for me to read and understand? If so, then that is good code. But the problem is, that is not a product. That's for you. Like, that's for you to be efficient in. Like, yes, you have to manage those things as part of your job. But the actual thing we were paying you for is a well-running machine code program. And you're not producing that. But like I said, performance awareness. We've lost the awareness that programming is about making sure the computer does something, not about does the text on your screen look good to you? Like that's not programming. We've got to get that back. You mentioned like in the 70s, you know, everybody did that. And I know a lot of programmers, you may be one of them who have talked about like their introduction to programming was writing assembly language for like a some system that's now very old or maybe a graphing calculator or something like that. Was that how you started out? Oh, that's got to be a lie. Who told you that? (laughs) Not about me, but in general, some people bandy that about. I don't think that's probably true. What we all started with and what I still recommend is we all started with basic. That's what I started with. Because that's what comes on the computer. And so nowadays, like, I don't think people should open up a semi-language as their first programming language. It's too daunting. Sure. Because it takes too long to get something useful on the screen. It's not that a semi-language is actually complex. Semi-language is actually very simple. Right. But it takes too long, right? And so I think people should start with something like JavaScript. I think people should start with something like Python. That's great. Or R, or one of these, you know, languages that's designed for rapid prototyping, simple stuff. Yeah. It's just we then want to move, like we want to stop that and then go to like, yeah, yeah, you should learn some C and assembly or things that allow you to really want, you should be in Godbolt, you should learn what the computer's actually doing, that sort of stuff afterwards. And we all did do that too, right? Like that's the step. But I don't want beginners to think that they're supposed to start writing assembly. Like, no, like everyone, I think, started, unless you were way, way back, like I'm from 1955 and like, like, and I had to program punch card assembly because there was like literally no Fortran. Yeah. Anyone in the 70s and 80s probably got a home computer and started in basic if they were a child, right? And then if they were lucky, they found out about something about assembly so they could start practicing. And if they weren't, they ended up with some language like C or probably Pascal would have been very common at that time as well that could let them do a little bit more. And then only the people who really had access to like the manuals and stuff or knew that that was a thing would learn assembly language. I think both John Blow and I have talked about the fact that We feel like we'd be much better programmers today if we'd found out about assembly language earlier, but we didn't have that knowledge. It's not like today we just go on the internet. We didn't know. So it's just you only have what you have on your like little Commodore 64 or whatever it is, right? So anyway, just wanted to clear that part up. But I also think market forces is another one. I think people don't realize how powerful 
market forces for performance actually are. Mm. Right now, the web lives in a world where there's very, very little competition. So most of the time, your service is just kind of the only service in that area. Like it's like, hey, we're Google and we ship Gmail and then Microsoft ships Outlook and that's like it for mail. Very few people are like, hey, we're going to ship this amazing email program that's awesome and is super good. And even if they did, they're still on top of W3C. So there's like a limit to what they can do. But I think market forces for performance are actually very strong. When people first saw an iPhone running at 60 frames a second where you could like drag your finger over it and it was instantly responsive, nobody wanted a Windows CE device. <laughs> right. It's gone. When people saw Google Maps, which was a mere like 15 frames a second probably or 10, they didn't want MapQuest anymore, which was you had to click and wait. People intuitively understand great performance when you give it to them. There's a tremendous market opportunity for anyone who wants to make a move into a space and deliver a truly great experience of which performance is usually critical. I think that's something that could also help change the culture because once you have strong competitors who are really strong on performance, they're very hard to unseat because you have to come out with a very well-performing product to do so. You've talked about games many times now. You're like, we could learn a lot from games. Look at all these things games are doing. Well, as we also pointed out, the menu system in games is also running through some slow thing sometimes, or right? Yeah. There's nothing magic about games. What happens with games is players won't play something that runs at 10 frames a second. Right. It's a market force. They've already played games at 60 FPS. They won't go back. And so sort of what's happening in games is not that everyone in games has a magic halo and walks around sprinkling their fairy dust on the magic code and it's amazing. It's like, no, they have to maintain a stable of performance experts because otherwise they literally can't ship the product. Yeah, the hard to go back aspect definitely resonates with me. Like something that I've noticed is that a lot of people, if you show them something that's faster, don't seem to value that that much as end users compared to if they're used to the faster thing and you show them something that's slower and feels laggier. Yeah. Like going back seems to be a lot harder, which is a little bit annoying as like an implementer because it means that in order to get people used to the faster thing, either it's got to be like substantially faster or like you're competing with something that's already like painfully slow or else you need to offer something else. The funniest example I can think of, of this is my washing machine, which I did not buy. This is, it was there when I moved in. Okay. It takes like one to two seconds to boot up. Like, oh, man. <laughs> I press the power button and it plays a little sound and these LEDs that let you select the thing, like do a little ring animation. But before it plays the sound and does that, it's completely not interactive. The first time I used it, I pressed the power button. I was like, what's going on? Yep. And then it's like, oh, now it's, yep. what was that delay? And like, I grew up with a washing machine that I assume didn't have any software on it. You just had a dial and it probably had some mechanical. I mean, maybe there was like a tiny, I don't know, chip in there or something. Some of them are completely mechanical, so it's hard to say. It might have had an IC, but it might not have. Yeah. But it's bizarre to me that maybe that's just the new normal that everyone's used to. But like to me, I'm like, I would never want to buy a washing machine by this brand. Like if this one dies, I'm not going to get another one like this because I know from when I grew up that this can be an instantaneous operation. Right. So knowing that it can be instant, like it's just frustrating to have it not be instant. I want to get back to the instant thing. Yes, absolutely. It's like, oh yeah, I wanted to use my toaster, but the toaster's got to like run F suck on the drive or something because it's <laughs> right. like running embedded Linux and you you know, the power went out last night and now it's sitting there like going through a, the one terabyte SSD storage they had to have because they couldn't figure out how to get their app down any smaller than that, <laughs> right? All these ridiculous things. That kind of stuff happening is super annoying, but to me, it also just spells massive market opportunity. Basically, if you are the kind of person who wanted to get some people together and write some performance software, 
I feel like the world is kind of your oyster because literally anywhere you look, the software is garbage. About the only place you couldn't assail that way is games. Games and maybe like backend search at Google might be really super tightly optimized, but you're not really assailing that anyway, right? So, you know, there's a few tiny little pockets where people are super pushed on performance. Just don't go after those. Everybody else, they, they have no ability to compete with you. You could just absolutely dominate as long as you can show someone something where it's like, hey, remember when you were sitting here and it took you five minutes to file a tax form? Well, now, boop, boop, it's done. It just has to be people want to do it and with the expertise, right? I've spent a lot of time thinking about like why technologies get popular. And one of the answers that is very clear to me is there's a group of people who started a company and they were like, I don't know, I'll use this thing that I already know mm-hmm. or like, like or and I'm curious about and want to use it on a big project. And then the startup takes off and now 10,000 people work at that company and they all mm-hmm. use that technology. And mm-hmm. that's the market force that drives the technology adoption. It's not really necessarily quality of the code or like the performance or anything like that. It's really just did the business succeed? And that's for so many different factors of which technology is oftentimes a very small part. Nevertheless, that is very strong social proof for people considering what technologies to adopt. I recently watched a little documentary on Ruby on Rails. They had like the founder of Shopify there and Shopify is like, you know, this huge business. And he just talked about how like, I just want to be able to stand up my store and Rails had enough out the box, get up and running fast enough stuff that it let him do that ORM and plus one, whatever. The decision was entirely to him about, I just want to make this shop exist. And Rails for him was a good fit. And so now I have a friend who recently switched jobs to Shopify. And, and he's like, well, the pay is really good. And, you know, mm-hmm. like, I don't really like Rails, but whatever. And I'm really into Shopification. Right. He was really into the mission. But at the end of the day, it's like a lot of people are making technology choices by looking at big, successful companies and not necessarily being aware of what is the reason that this company got big and successful and like what percentage of that was the technology's like suitability for a given problem versus just like the person who started the company needed something. Like the company I just spent nine years at, the founder was an English teacher. He didn't know any programming. And he was like, we could be doing stuff in our classrooms that's so much better and more interactive and makes the kids learn faster, but it doesn't exist. And I've tried to emulate it using Google Docs and it's not working. And he just went on Craigslist and was like, help, I just need a programmer to implement a thing for me that I can use in my classroom. And the guy who responded to that Craigslist post, that guy chose Rails. And by the time this teacher left teaching and decided to go make tools for teachers, he had tens of thousands of lines of Ruby. There's this very famous video that I always recommend people watch if you care about how stuff gets adopted in like the web world. It's called Build a Blog Engine in Ruby on Rails in 15 Minutes. And it's this pitch video for Rails, and it was wildly successful and sort of catapulted Rails and Ruby to like mega popularity. And if you watch what he's doing, the selling point is not really Ruby, it's not really Rails, it's that he's using a ton of code generators. He's like, generate me a page that does this on a basic level, and then I'm going to go and tweak it and customize it to my use case. That's what's saving all the time. That's what gets people up and running faster. You can do that in any language. But it happened to be that it was done in that language. And in my analysis, that's the market force that people aren't really paying attention to. Is It's like, why did this technology get big? It's because people who weren't programmers felt like they could get up and running fast. If you want people to be in that spot and get up and running with technology that's easier to optimize over the long term and that people can make better software with, we should be trying to compete on that axis. The phenomenon that you're describing is what happens whenever you have a new domain, which the web is still to this day. There really isn't a successful web company for every possible thing you might want to do online. Despite the billions of dollars spent on these companies, it's probably still, there's more to come, right? It's like it hasn't finished. Yeah. 
And in that kind of environment, like I said, there's just no competition. It's not like these people, when they go to do their startup for their education startup or whatever it is, they're simply not going to be competing on performance. And the reason for that is because they're not going to be competing on anything. Like, it's really just a competition with consumers to see if they care about the thing that you're doing. And in that environment, they are correct in what they're doing. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you use Ruby on Rails. It doesn't matter if you use PHP, which is Facebook. It doesn't matter if you use Python. It doesn't matter whatever, right? It doesn't matter because you simply aren't competing. So you're going to succeed or fail strictly based on whether the random users stick to this thing that you've built. So that's why I say, like, it's really a market forces thing. And in some sense, I think it will probably correct itself over time anyway. Because once you have one of everything that people are generally going to want, how do you unseat that one? The answer is you have to come up with something better. And you're not going to come up with something better in Ruby on Rails. So part of that is, like, you have to get through this phase. I mean, the first car wasn't a modern sedan. It didn't get 30 miles to the gallon and trivial accelerate to 80 miles an hour with a smooth ride. Like, that wasn't a thing we knew how to build. They broke down all the time. They, they went, like, 15 miles an hour. They belched disgusting fumes into the <laughs> air all the time, right? So the first 20 or 30 years of web were going to suck unless magically you just lucked out and the people that, you know, not W3C, but the people who were originally making the original browsers were awesome programmers. We didn't get lucky, but you can't expect luck to save you, right? So as a result, we are where we are. And yeah, I totally agree with you. It's like, if you want to see this start to change, what you have to do is provide easy to use tools that are performant by default. That is difficult to do and we haven't been providing it. That's just not something that the web world is making because people in general don't even know about how to make performant things in that space. So they aren't targeting that. They're just kind of making new text processors that they think let them enter less text to get a website, no matter how slow or buggy it is. And that's what we get. Now, I would like to add one thing to what you said. I recently did a video called Performance Excuses Debunked. And in it, I point out the fact that, like, yes, the innocent college dorm room startup entrepreneur person, I don't know what you want to call them, hopeful, that's what <laughs> I'm looking for, I'm going to be Mark Zuckerberg, or I am Mark Zuckerberg, reaches for whatever the random thing is that they just kind of knew how to use, Ruby on Rails, PHP, Python, whatever it was, and they just start making this thing, and it grows to a billion users. We then see the 20 years of blog posts never fail. You can look up any successful company started in the last 20 years and you will see these blog posts. I collected them all in that video if you want to go watch it. It wasn't even all. It was like a subset, right? Yeah. And it's just like blog post after blog post is like, well, in order to get past 100,000 users, we had to completely rewrite our entire database backend. And then it's like, Six months later, in order to get past 500,000 users, it turns out our rewrite in Python was a bad choice. So we wrote it in Go. The next one, they're like, well, we're, we're rewriting the entire front end because that thing didn't work. So the initial founder reaches for whatever they know. I don't blame them. How are you going to start a company on something you don't know? You have to start with your expertise or you won't get anywhere. Yeah. And then basically what it is is 20 years of trying to hire expert programmers to come in and clean up the mess. With Facebook's case, all sorts of rewrites, massive org-wide rewrites, many times that their own custom PHP compiler, like it's hack, I guess technically is their thing, because they had to fix that. And Herculean efforts going into just even just boosting 30, 40%, massive rewrites of how they do storage to save, you know, 
the performance people come eventually because they have to. Yeah, that's also a great video. I <laughs> I kind of had a sense like before going into that video that this type of thing happens because I've seen these blog posts come up over the years. But yeah. just seeing them all back to back and it's it's really yeah. like, okay, yeah, no, this is just ubiquitous. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, and it's every company you know, like every famous company that you're like, oh, big company, Uber, Twitter, Facebook, whatever, all of them. Yeah, right. No, absolutely. And the reason I keep bringing up culture is that, so, I mean, listeners of this podcast know, but like, so we've been making a performance-oriented programming language that is, among other things, intended to be used on the web. And actually, the company I work at now, the plan is to move the back end from Node.js to this language that I've been developing. This is a custom language. I mean, it's like a general programming language. We're trying to compete with all the languages out there. Wow, all right. So you guys are going for it. You're like, look, not only are we redoing the back end, but we're redoing it in our own language. That's like Jonathan Blow level panache right there. (laughs) Well, it's the other way around. Like I joined the company because I had been making the language in my free time and this company was really interested in it because they're very unhappy with their Node.js backend and wanted to move in that direction. (laughs) <laughs> I'm sure there's somebody who's thrilled with their Node.js backend, but the design of it, and we can get into that if you're curious, but I know you're not really a big languages guy. We didn't think about it in terms of the hardware at the time, but it's more like, what does C do here? Like, what does C++ do here? And how can we get the, like, guarantees that we want for the language without deviating from that, like, as little as possible? So, for example, our bread and butter data structure is essentially a C++ vector, but with, like, a reference count attached. We do automatic reference counting. Okay. Everything is as unboxed as it can be or would be in C++ or something like that. But using the language feels like you're using a high-level language like a Python or something like that. There's this guiding philosophy of let's try to introduce the minimal amount of overhead that we can get away with in order to get something that feels like, okay, I don't have to think about managing memory. So it's kind of like a direct garbage collection instead of indirect. It's like we will literally track these things by reference and free them when we detect the reference count going to zero as opposed to like a mark and sweep sort of a thing or something like that. Okay. One of the things that's innovative with the language, I don't know if any other language has ever done this. Basically, we have this concept of platforms and applications. And the idea is that you start by picking a platform, which is sort of a domain-specific foundation to build on, sort of like a game engine. Mm. Unlike a game engine, the platform is not just responsible for the domain-specific stuff, but it's actually also responsible for malloc and free, which means that you can get in a web request handler, it can just arena allocate every single request. Every allocation is a bump allocation. And then once the response gets sent back, it just frees everything by just saying, okay, somebody else can use the arena now. Okay. That's very far from like mark and sweep. Yes, yes. But it still feels like if you're the Shopify person, you're just like, the memory gets managed for me. I don't have to think about pointers. The learning curve is lower. It feels more like using the languages that we're competing with. But some expert could go in there and make the performance have those characteristics, even if the beginner doesn't have any idea about that. And then hopefully, in my mind, someday the beginner can become the expert and they can like get into that part of the code base. If we can make that experience so nice that someone's like, hey, I just want to use this because it feels like it'll be easy for me to get my thing up and running... And then once it does get successful, there's not this massive amount of required overhead. We're going to have to go and like rewrite a VM. There is no VM. The performance characteristics should be about like C++ if you had to use like smart pointers, unique pointers or something. I don't know. One of those pointers that does reference counting. Yeah, they have a lot of auto pointer, shared pointer, unique. They got every pointer under the sun is in there now. I don't even remember. Spicy Chipotle pointers. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. With or without sour cream, et cetera. Whatever the one that like does reference counting is. It's along the lines of that. Which like definitely is slower than like what you could do if you're writing C, but we want to be able to create the guarantee that you're not going to have the experience that I did as a kid where it's like you get this like memory garbage because you did malloc or free wrong or something. 
usually when we're saying like, we will be willing to sacrifice a little bit of performance, what we expect to get is like, there's a category of something substantial that goes away. That's what we're buying for that performance hit compared to like a C or a C++ or a Rust or whatever. Yeah. It's okay to make the choice to make the performance a little bit worse, but we have to actually have a conversation about what specifically are we getting in return for this performance cost and does it justify the amount of performance that we're sacrificing? In addition to trying to make a technology that's that people can get good performance out of, I also really want the culture around the people using the language to be on board with that too. The tagline of it is fast, friendly, functional. That's like the tagline of the language. Okay. We can talk about the functional part later. I know you're not a functional programming guy, but fast comes first there. It's like, that's something that I really want to be present in people's minds as users of the language. It's just like, culturally, let's make fast software. We could do it. You know, it's yeah. possible. Yeah. And let's be thinking about it like first and not premature optimization is the root of all evil or make it work, make it pretty, make it fast. Let's plan to make it fast. And if it's not fast early on, then it's because like you said earlier, it was a throwaway comment, but I picked up what you're saying. Hotspot engineering after the fact really has a low success rate. Very low, If yeah. you plan ahead of time to be like, look, I know this one section. It's going to be slow. I have a plan for how we can make it fast in the future. And I'm going to design everything to make sure that plan will still work in the future. Exactly. That can work. <laughs> yes. But that's a cultural thing, right? Like, it's not just about the technology. It's about, are people aware of those things? And is that something that's just like not frowned upon, but smiled upon in the culture of the language. And I hope we can be successful at both of these things of like getting adoption of a technology where people have a relatively high performance ceiling compared to what's possible today. And yet beginners can get up to speed with it and like use it to build their businesses. And also we have a good culture around performance when people start getting more into it. I hope. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that does sound promising. In general, I I would say it's a good trend that there are sort of a fair number of things like that now. People making languages where they're like, can we get something that we wanted from some existing language like JavaScript or whatever, but can we make the actual performance more like something written in C? And that's a positive trend, I think, because it's like, yeah, most of the time when you look at the things that people actually needed from Python or from JavaScript or from whatever, they really didn't need to be done in the weird, like, interpreted, super dynamic way that they did them. Like, most of the things people actually want are, like, the good standard library. And, uh, you know, like you said, tracking of when things should be freed or whatever. Like, pretty basic stuff that you don't really need all this other slow stuff to get. And so it seems like pretty low-hanging fruit to say, well, could we just make some languages that people felt comfortable using because they have those features that weren't then dog slow. (laughs) Yeah. And so it seems like people are trying that. And I think that's very encouraging because if any of those languages succeeded, that would put us in a better position relative to where we are I wish I could say more people are working on it. So I definitely have seen new languages that are competing with C and C++. You got like Zig and Odin and Rust. JAI, I guess, is... uh, There's like no official pronunciation, but yeah, and Rust certainly... I mean, Rust has definitely been the most successful of those. Well, there's also a more germane to like what you're thinking is there's also Mojo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mojo or okay, whatever. Yeah. yeah. Which is like we modified Python a little bit or whatever, right? You know, to make it faster. I'm curious to see how that pans out. But my understanding is that the main thing that Mojo does is that they seamlessly introduce the ability to do C type operations into Python. I guess there's some yeah. amount of speeding Python up, but it's more yeah. like if you really know what you're doing, now you can drop down to that without having to use a separate language. 
I would assume that Mojo programmers would get a lot out of your course <laughs> because it's like, hey, now you understand like what the like yeah. you said. It's you know at the end of the day, if you're programming, thinking about the hardware first as opposed to the language first, then like you know you're just like, well, how do I express what I want the hardware to do in my language as opposed to the other yeah. way around, or or just yeah. not think about the hardware at all, which I guess is yeah. the most common. Then yeah, like whether it's in C or whether it's in Mojo or something, I guess you would get something out of that. There's definitely a trend to try to make already popular languages faster. So Bun would be the other big example of this. It's like we made a new JavaScript runtime. So that project and Mojo are examples of speeding up existing languages. I guess like the Facebook's you know, VM is another one. I'm glad that people are doing that. But unless I'm very much mistaken, I don't think they're able to like fundamentally change certain characteristics. It's like there's this overhead that's there by default and we can use tricks to try to reduce it as opposed to what I think is a better approach, which is to say, let's start with we're doing C, aka portable assembly, which maybe is or isn't a reasonable moniker, but and then selectively adding in overhead if we think it's really getting us a big benefit. As opposed to being like, how fast can I make this default interpreted language that's designed to be interpreted? It seems like you can do a much better job and get a much better outcome if you are starting from a different place. I mean, you almost certainly would because obviously having no constraints is going to make it easier than having some constraints. (laughs) Sure, fair enough. But I would point out that like the point is to improve the speed of software. And so adoption is a big part of that. And if you look at the history of something like, so you look at something like C++, why was C++ successful? I mean, it's one of the worst design languages, I think, of all time. I certainly hope most people wouldn't contest that because I mean, of languages that weren't intentionally designed poorly. I mean, there's some that were are like joke languages and stuff like that. Sure. But of languages, you know, it's really hard to find one that's worse designed than C++. It's probably one of the worst designers of all time. Very successful language. Why? Because it started with the language everyone was already using and just allowed them to keep compiling that code base and just make changes anywhere they wanted, but using new features, some of which actually sort of work, like operator overloading, right? Yeah. And so, you know, people who are coming at it from like, look, can we start to mutate Python slowly towards something that's actually performant? They're coming from the historically more likely to work position because it's probably harder without a marketing budget. You look at the kinds of languages that succeeded really well. Something like Java had a massive marketing budget to try and get people to adopt it. The other languages that are kind of popular now came up around the same time as the web. So they were sort of just like the things that were there. And so I don't know if unseating those is all that easy. Maybe it is. Oh, it's not. It's definitely not. I mean, like, you're definitely right that like it is a lot easier to get adoption of a technology that has a like, it's just X story where X is, you know, zero barrier to entry. You can just load up all your Python code and run it, and then, oh, all of a sudden you can start to write these fast things. Is a much easier sell than check out ROC where with the placeholder webpage coming Monday or whatever, right? It's like, (laughs) it's much harder, right? It's like, then you got to go read about it, and is it actually going to be good? I don't know, you know, so, right? 100%. But, like, the thing is, there are success stories. It's not like it's impossible. Like, Rust has nothing to do with any language that came before it other than, like, you know, ML, uh, Go, same story, like, no backwards compatibility. Swift, I guess, just had backwards compatibility with Objective-C, which is like kind of a weird one because it's like, this is the Apple language, but... Well, Swift and Go kind of have a similar thing as Java, though. They have a a very large companies kind of pushing them, like, and making them a thing, right? Which, you know, if you happen to have that, you can probably get a lot of mileage out of it, but, you know, most people don't. Russ did not, though. I mean, Russ had Mozilla, but like... Yeah, yeah, that probably worked against them, if anything. (laughs) 
It's like, oh, that's the thing Mozilla's written in. All right. They make that browser that literally no one thinks of as some kind of exemplary software package. I've had it, right? It's just like, okay, yeah, that's not really it. Whereas, you know, Google and Apple have good reputations, at least, you know, among some people, right? Well, more to the point, it's like, you know, if you're at Google and Google's like, hey, this is a language that we're using, get on board, then just a bunch of people are going to learn it and use it and get comfortable with it. Same thing with Apple. And I think Ruby is actually a good example. Like, I mean, you mentioned like, that's definitely one of the like coming up with the web languages. Yeah, PHP was that way as well. But Ruby is interesting because if you look at the Google search trends for Ruby, it's like essentially nothing until 2005 when Rails comes out and then it's like off the charts. The reason that that happened was not that Ruby got a lot better. It was that there was this suddenly very compelling thing that people could do with it that they couldn't previously. And that I think can happen to essentially any language where you get some use case or something that is really good at that a lot of people start trying out and liking and then some of them start to start a company and then that company gets big and now everyone they hire is using that thing. Like, that is a totally viable path for a new clean slate language to get in. And you can tell I've spent a lot of time thinking about this because I'm, yeah. I want this to actually happen. I don't want to just right. make a language and then I just shake my fist at the sky and be like, why isn't anyone using this good thing? It's like, no, I actually, I want to get to the outcome of people are using it in industry. Right. right. And so it's definitely possible, but absolutely, you're right. It's harder. But again, if I'm trying to do the really good thing, like, is it doable? Not how hard is it? And I'm like, yeah, it seems doable and it is harder. <laughs> but that's yeah, okay. It, it definitely seems doable. You just have to find some niche like that. I mean, like the Ruby on Rails thing, again, it's still, I think of that as being a first mover kind of thing. It's like people just weren't providing this thing and they were providing it. So if you can find a thing like that where it's like, hey, people aren't providing this experience, right? And we start providing it, that is a great way to become very popular even among a crowded field because you can find that niche and grow out of it, right? Yeah. And I I mean, like hobbyists are part of that where like you don't necessarily have to do something that's really great for industry as the selling point if you can do something that hobbyists really like. Right, to get a a groundswell, basically, yeah. Uh, Yeah, and and then like what happens is like you have a founder who's starting their company and maybe that founder is the hobbyist and they're like, hey, I've been having a lot of fun with this. I'm just going to use that for my startup. Or the founder is non-technical and the person they hire is like, you mean I can use whatever technology I want? The founder's like, knock yourself out. I don't know programming. And they're like, I'm going to use the thing I like in my spare time. <laughs> and then you get the like the thing where HR puts out the thing that's like 10 plus years of rock experience. Right. <laughs> right. Like, Dude, it's three years old. Right, right. <laughs> and I think you're absolutely right that given enough time, a lot of these problems around performance and whatnot will kind of, I don't want to say solve themselves, but like the natural course of things will lead things to improve because of competition. But you know, I'm not going to live forever. I want to see that happen in my lifetime. Sure. Yeah. And it's, I mean, I assume that you do and you're coming at it from a different perspective, but going back to my belief that web programming can learn a lot from games, people aren't going to play your game if it runs at 10 frames per second. It's not going to be fun. Like you're, you're there for fun and that's not a fun experience. That's a frustrating experience. And like you mentioned, there's no competition. Like my boss used to say at the English company, he would say, our competition is textbooks. There's like not another software company. Later we got competitors like, like for real, like software companies. If he was an English teacher, would he have to say our competition is a textbook? <laughs> we had a lot of grammar jokes about like you know okay. like, like if someone would like make a grammar mistake and like that okay. was a really common thing at okay. that company. But but I mean really I mean it was like look kids can learn better if they get instant feedback. Like they make a mistake and it's like here's the mistake you made and then also I can like tell you in context of what you just wrote. Here's what you should have done differently or what the mistake was or whatever. As a teacher, you physically can't do that for a classroom of 30 kids. It's just the math doesn't work. So yeah, it's kind of like there is no competition, at least in the software world, at least at first. 
Right. So maybe the answer is we just have to wait. And then like there will be competition you can compete on performance. But it's not like programmers are lacking for things to feel competitive about that aren't really necessarily related to the business or That's like true. that they're like backing into like trying to retroactively justify right. is like, oh, this is totally for the business. But it's like, no, people just have like opinions about how code should look, tabs versus oh, spaces, yeah. you know. Oh, all over the place. It's like, stop using if statements. And it's like a three hours of YouTube content on this. And you're just like, what is wrong with this? Like, <laughs> how did we get here? But like, this is something that we can discuss. So we do. And I would like to think that if there were more awareness and like a bigger cultural emphasis on like actually thinking about here's what the hardware is capable of, that maybe instead those debates would get replaced with like what I would consider to be actually useful things that actually move the needle. And then we might, even without having a real strong market force rewarding good performance, just a cultural thing where programmers like to compete on performance anyway, because everybody's educated enough about it to know how to do that. And like, that's just a thing that we seem to naturally do regardless. I think there's a tendency to somehow think that like performance is super complicated and you're never going to be able to understand it. And you hear weird things like, oh, the compiler is always smarter than you and weird like statements that just don't make any sense. Even just trying to figure out how to lay out a web page with CSS is dramatically more difficult than learning assembly language. I agree with that. Yeah. Dramatically more difficult. Anyone who can actually lay out a web page successfully with CSS directly can definitely learn assembly language. There's no question. Because assembly yeah. language is trivial, has very little going on, and is excruciatingly well-specified. Whereas CSS is none of those things. Even just one thing. If you can explain how an individual element of a web page might inherit properties from a style sheet, <laughs> and you can list them all, that alone is dramatically more difficult than just learning x86 assembler. Dramatically more difficult. I can teach you x86 assembler in like 30 minutes. <laughs> I don't know someone who can answer that other question completely. There's a very large document. You can read through it and you're probably missing some things. They're probably missing some things that they didn't quite get right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, I, I, <laughs> I think it's like, it's weird that I've been doing this professionally for like 15 years and I've done some things that I have good reason to believe are quite advanced. Like you mentioned the like doing the layout in JavaScript thing. Funny story about that. When I was at the English company, we were making a user interface that for one reason or another, I tried doing it in simpler ways. None of them worked. What ended up being the only way to implement this interface, which actually we took out two classrooms and tried on kids, like the simpler versions, and they were not getting it. And so finally, we're like, okay, the only way to actually implement the interface that we think will work, and they'll actually mm. learn the concept, mm. involved doing like manual layout and word wrapping and whatnot in JavaScript. Mm. So I did that. And later on, we hired somebody who used to work with one of our very few competitors at the time in the software world. Mm. And what she told me was that she was in charge of like this division that was like looking at our stuff and evaluating it. And she was like, yeah, you had this one really great interface for active voice and passive voice. I was like, oh, I made that. And she's like, yeah, I actually was like, hey, can you guys make this? And they were like, no. Like they tried <laughs> to do like, having done that, I remember like, that was not that hard. It was not like a big complicated problem, but it seems like I'm guessing, I mean, I wasn't there, but I'm guessing that the reason that they weren't able to replicate that was that they were probably assuming, even though you can like view source and like see what it's actually doing, but it's all minified. So right, maybe right. that's like too much of a pain, whatever. But like, 
I would assume yeah. that their mentality was like, you have to do this exclusively using CSS, which the reason I didn't do that was that I don't think it was actually possible, at least back then. This was like in the, we had to support Internet Explorer 9, I think, at the time. And so like definitely right. with that constraint, you couldn't do it. But like, I would assume that they just were not thinking about like, well, what is this machine capable of? Is there some way I can get this machine to do this user interface? Right, but rather right, like, yeah. I don't know what CSS incantations right. would I use to like make this happen. Well, I go- I googled right. I googled like how do you put a word above another word, and it just came up with you can't or whatever. Right? It's like you can't do <laughs> right, that. Right, or yeah, you, right? you would say like, yeah. say, like the uh, browsers don't do yeah. that. That's not part of the spec or right. whatever. Or at least it wasn't or, until like, later. It is, or something. but you can't. It doesn't support IE nine. So they're like, all right, we can't use that, and that's it. Or you know what I mean? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I'm definitely like, even though I have done things like that, I recently was working on like the new version of the Rock website and. I've been like using chat GPT to like yeah. answer CSS questions. Yeah. I'm like, I know that there is some way to do this. Just tell me how to do that. And it's like, here you go. I'm like, great. Thank you. I don't spend enough time with assembly language to do that, but I'm pretty sure if I was like, I need to like do this sequence of things in assembly language, I could just load all of that into my head and just not need to consult anything on the internet. Once I have like, remember they have the muscle memory for the instructions themselves. It's like, there's a pretty small set of exactly. them. And it's really clear what each of them does. And so the only thing my brain is doing is figuring out like, okay, which combination of these primitives, which are Turing complete, like I know that that can solve these problems using these primitives that I have. It's just a question of how I'm going to yeah. do it. It's not a question of like, is it possible? Or like, there's no magical incantations in assembly. Exactly. There's tricks. Like I remember like looking in Godbolt at like the disassembly of something and being like, why is LEA being used here? That's really weird. <laughs> yeah. and, like, and you did explain that in your course. Yeah, which I was I like, yes, okay, cool, cool. <laughs> the magic of effective address calculations, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this has nothing to do with what I was expressing here. Yep. What's going on? Yeah. But like, if I were writing the assembly from scratch and I didn't know about that trick, I wouldn't use load effective address for something that's seemingly very unrelated to loading an effective exactly, address. Exactly, yeah. But I would still get the thing to work. Yeah. And like, it, you know, I might be missing out on a very small amount of performance, but like, I wouldn't feel like I need to consult this just to figure out how to do this at all. Even with like 15 years of professional experience, when I was like doing this website, there were times where I was like, I'm trying to do something that feels like it should be very straightforward and I'm really struggling to get it to actually do what I want. Yes. Actually, there was one case where I did, I literally gave up because of cross-browser stuff. I really don't know how to say this any other way. It like, people don't understand how bad the W3C platform is. It is absolutely unconscionably bad. I really don't think people have internalized this. Like, anything you might want to do in programming (laughs) is easier than trying to actually know how to program a CSS layout. I would wager that it would be almost impossible to find someone who actually is a CSS expert, meaning I could ask them a question based on what's going to happen, and they could really tell me this is the exact thing that it will do right? Yeah. Whereas, like I said, assembly languages, it's very well specified. Like, you have to go hunting very hard for esoteric corner cases. But CSS, it's everywhere. It's like, I don't know. I'm like, okay, well, that you changed the Z index. All right, is that going to be okay? But that's only inside the things that are up here. But wait, all right, this got taken out of the layout, the normal box order, because it's actually inside someone who switched to relative positioning. And you're just like, That's so much more complicated than any (laughs) chip's assembly language ever. I could teach you Itanium before that, right? (laughs) It's like there's never been an assembly language as complicated as CSS. So if you're grappling with that every day, do not tell me you can't learn performance. You're already working on something way harder. 
Yeah, I buy that. I Honestly, I wonder how much of that is just the terseness of assembly language that makes it feel like why people are afraid of it. I think because it's associated with very good programmers. That's probably it. CSS is associated with any designer who doesn't even know programming is supposed to be able to use this. It's associated with that in your brain. Assembly language is associated with like Steve Wozniak or some like fantastic programmer who you're definitely never going to be as good at, right? Mm -hmm. But the reality is that nobody knows how CSS works. Steve Wozniak <laughs> could not lay out a web page. <laughs> Full freaking stop, dude. He would have to do the same thing you do. He would have to desperately search on Google for some poor fellow who spent seven days figuring out how they were going to float left something <laughs> in this one case where it definitely doesn't float left for some reason. And he would cut and paste that and cross right. his fingers that the rest of his page is close enough that it will work. It simply isn't about that. And so people think that something like assembly language is this really daunting thing. It's not. What you're working with right now, trying to wrangle W3C stuff, that's the impossible task. Anyone can learn assembly language. Anyone. You might not be a wizard. You might not be the world's best optimizer. But absolutely, you can read and understand it. Anyone. Give me anyone who can do a CSS layout, and I guarantee you I could teach them assembly language. You know, it's funny you say that. Like, I never thought about it in this way, but you know, you think about these like legendary low-level programmers like Wozniak and John Carmack, and I would assume, oh yeah, they're not very good at CSS, but my mindset always would have been like, well, yeah, but if they learned it, they'd be good at it because they're just great programmers. But now that you mentioned it, it's like, actually, probably not. It's a lot more like the law than it is like a technical discipline, right? In the law, you get these things where it's like, oh, yeah, this is a Supreme Court case. And what is this about? It's like, oh, well, Congress passed an additional statute that said that veterans will get the 9-11 benefits and there's a statutory scheme for how they're implemented. And then someone was trying to claim that they could get both those benefits and Montgomery benefits at the same time but come from a different statute. Does the word shall in this clause mean that they can get them at the same time or not, right? And it's like 300 pages of briefing, two hours of oral arguments, a bunch of, you know, Supreme Court stuff that's happening. There's been three levels of appellate review, like... <laughs> thousands of hours of lawyer time and they're just trying to figure out shall that's css it's not a technical discipline it's like we have no idea like no one knows how you center things we just <laughs> made a bunch of stuff we made flexbox we made grids we thought maybe this would solve it it didn't and now we're still like yeah we got 25 percent more centering cases covered this year and we don't even know how many more there are because no one knows and that's where we're at it's like the law it's ever changing and the Supreme Court is the browser. You put your thing in and it tells, the gavel comes down and it's like, hey, it's centered. All right, we won our case. <laughs> or it's like, nope, not centered, son. And it's like, oh, okay, we lost our case. I guess we're not going to center that way. That's what it feels like. It's not a real tech discipline. It's this gigantic morass of just arbitrary stuff that got no one really thought about and just kind of all got piled on. It's very hard. So one of the things on the new website is we have like a REPL that's like right there. On the, so you can just try out the thing on the website yeah. like yeah. right away. Yeah. I'm looking at this in different browsers and there's a little carrot, like a little prompt, you know, right before yep. you start typing in because like that's yeah. that's what you see in a REPL in the command line. And I wanted sure. to make it look like it does on the command line. I could not get this thing to look 
the same way vertically centered on different browsers. I just yes. could not get it to happen. And like, I'm specifying the same thing. It's just, it, most of the page, it's like, as far to my eye, pixel identical, except for that one thing. Yes. I assume it's because it's in a text area or something like that. There's some difference between Firefox and Chrome. And like, if I move it down a little bit in one, then it's off in the other direction in the other one. If I move it up a little bit, and I just could not figure out how to get, so I, I just gave up. And now it's just, it just looks a little bit wrong. And even though I actually use Firefox and not Chrome as my daily driver, I'm like, well, I'm going to make it look worse than Firefox because I have to pick one, apparently, and more people use Chrome. So I'm going to personally suffer because I can't. But again, if I had that primitive that you were talking about, yeah, it would be solved in two seconds. It's just like, it's the same exact calculation. I just need access to those dimensions of that character and knowing what the <laughs> what the box is around it. That's it. It's, it. It should be such a trivial thing to solve. And I wonder how many problems are like that, where if you ask someone, do I need to be able to center something between two characters? They would say, of course not. That never comes up. But it's not really about that. That was the example that you came up with. It's more about like, when you run into something and it's just, for whatever reason, not behaving the way you expect it, you could blame it on the browsers. You can say, well, one of them is not implementing the spec properly. But the point is, if you just had access to these low-level primitives that were just like so easy to implement, like CPU instructions, where it's like every browser can get those right because they're just very simple. It's not hard to try. Like You can write a test suite that anyone can run their thing against and it's just a straightforward thing. Then it's like, if I'm seeing a weird inconsistency with some high-level convenience thing, I can be like, you know what? I can just drop down to the lower-level thing and fix this thing and move on with my life. But because that lower-level thing doesn't exist, I'm just going to have a website that looks worse. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, and there's a reason that most web pages don't do everything in CSS. Because you can't. It doesn't work. You end up having to write some things in JavaScript because, hey, guess which one of those two things was Turing complete? You know you can express the thing you actually needed it to do in JavaScript most of the time. Of course, interfacing the two together is also a huge pain because you can't necessarily ask the exact questions you want, but it's like, that's why. I don't need to make this argument. The fact that everyone has to use JavaScript as part of what they do to make their web page work, it just proves my point that CSS is a failure. I guess because I watched a bunch of your other videos, YouTube recommended to me this 10-year-old video of Jeff and Casey. Oh, yeah. And so you had this episode where, among other things, you were talking about the Ouya, this like old console. Oh, yeah, yeah. But at one point, you were talking about memory management and how the Ouya basically like which I guess did not succeed as a console. No, it didn't. They only let you do Java and you couldn't drop down into anything lower. There was no way to like get C on there, at least as far as you could tell. Like you asked them on Twitter and like nobody responded and like it wasn't clear that it was possible. Yeah. And you were talking about how in the context of games, garbage collection seemed to you to be very low value because the way that whatever you do a game, you're like, I do a bunch of allocations at the beginning. Yeah. And then from then on, I try to not do any allocations. You know, in my render loop, I'll have like, zero to three. So it's not hard to track those zero to three freeze. That's it. It's like as a game programmer, and this is a console, I spend very little time worrying about memory management. Now, I understand that like different people, like certainly when I was a kid, I didn't know how to do that. Like I was, I was malicking all over the place. I actually probably would have had a better time of it if I'd known about the better way to do it, because it would have been not only faster, but a lot less error prone. Yes. I think that's true in a lot of cases, but again, it's domain specific. That's true if I'm making a game, but I'm sure there are some domains where it genuinely is the case that you have a lot of allocations with complicated lifetimes and things like that. And like, that's just the correct way to write that program. It's not like you could make it faster by doing a bunch of allocations in some place that's really obvious. 
Usually it is. I'll just say, usually if you are doing a lot of allocations, there is almost always a faster and more stable version of that program that does not. Interesting. Almost almost always. I, I don't think I've ever actually encountered a case where that wasn't true. Wow. Okay. So that makes me wonder about when I was a kid, I had this idea that like only wizards can do that. But maybe it was actually just the case that it was like nobody had ever taught me that like, oh, kid, you're doing it wrong. If you just figure out where to do these allocations so that you don't have to have complicated lifetimes, your program is going to be faster and your life's going to be a lot better. There's also an externalization thing there that we should probably talk about if you're bringing up that. Sure. So the other thing that I think happens there is people don't count the cost of not knowing what happens if the memory isn't available. Mm. So one of the things that people are like, well, I do all these allocations because I don't know how many of these things I'm going to have or whatever. And like, well, can you put a bound on that? Like, do you know the maximum you could ever possibly have? Or could that bound be set at some time earlier in the program? And if they're like, no, I'm like, okay, do you handle out of memory properly so that the program keeps running well throughout the entire, <laughs> all of, everywhere in there? Of course not. Yeah, no chance. Like every one of these calls to new could throw is what you're telling me. And your program would keep on running. No problem. No data corruption. No bugs. Yeah. It's just going to chug on through. And like the answer is no. So the other problem is people also forget about that fact that's like, all right, if you haven't thought about that policy, really what you're doing is just telling the customer, it's like, if it crashes, buy more memory or something, <laughs> yeah, right? Pretty much. Like, keep it, right? And so it's like, it hasn't really been very well thought through at that point either. And so don't be coming back at me and telling me like, oh, you think this is a very stable way to press like, well, okay, I don't know about that. So it does seem a little bit odd. But anyway, separate from all of that, I would say, yeah, I have never really seen a program get better by increasing the amount of dynamic allocation. It almost always gets worse on both fronts. It's slower and uh, it tends to be less reliable because usually if you have a, a giant pointer jungle, which is what you end up with and that sort of thing happens, it's a lot harder to track, a lot harder to serialize properly, a lot harder to know when something has gone wrong because you don't just have a clean set of indices that can just be checked for out-of-boundsness, yeah. which is very simple. It just gets a lot worse, in my experience. That's Yeah, I mean, I, I, I believe it. I don't have any, like, personal... I mean, I... I yeah, that's my The first time yeah. I got paid to write C code was, like, earlier this year because we're trying to integrate the Node.js API, you know, with Rock. And, <laughs> like, ah. so... But I definitely don't have any experience with different ways of doing that. And it's interesting that I have heard, and you would know better than I would, that in the games world, when you do have a garbage collector, it's common in a lot of cases to basically circumvent it by just doing some gigantic dynamic allocation up front, make some huge dynamically sized array, and then write things into that array as if, you know, <laughs> as a, and basically do your own manual memory management on top of the dynamic memory management. That's correct. That's what everyone has to do because they end up having uh, garbage collection stutters. So basically, you know, you can go pull up any number of presentations about like somebody used Unity to make their game and here's how they had to like avoid the garbage collector, right? There's like many, there's... Yeah. So that's what happens. And again, that's why I'm always like, someone's telling me that this made it easier. Like, really? You ended up having to implement the thing that I said you should just start with. And... Now it's way slower because the garbage collector is still looking at everything all the time, even though you had to right. it. It's just so crazy. But, you know, I don't know. That's where we've ended up. It's just bizarre. You know, at the same time, in other domains, so there's this like famous Microsoft report that gets brought up roughly every other time that Rust enters a conversation, but around like 70% of the CVEs that they've seen over the past like decade were 
memory management mistakes. Yeah, I bet. But I wonder about that. I haven't taken the time to, and actually I don't even know if the data is available, but like drill down and be like, okay, but more specifically, what's going on here? I wonder about, for example, how many of those are buffer overruns? There are very simple solutions to that category of problems. And then, like you said, if you have a complicated lifetime jungle going on, maybe the problem is not so much, well, I need automatic memory management, but rather like there's a better way to write this where I don't have that. And if you put those two together, do you still have a big CVE problem or do you not anymore? I don't know. This is like outside my personal experience, but I have seen it happen many times in my career that everybody reaches for a really complicated solution when it turns out that if you just look harder for a simple solution, there's one that's just like kind of a win across the board. And the only downside is there's like some very esoteric situation where it's like, okay, technically, if you give me this very long list of constraints, then yes, my very simple solution doesn't work. But maybe we could adopt that for the other 99% of cases where it'll be just better across the board, but that doesn't end up happening. Yeah, I would agree with all of that. And I think probably the easiest case to talk about there would be like curl. So I think I saw like a thing where the curl people were talking about, like, here's how many like bugs we had with, you know, memory stuff or whatever. And those kinds of things. I remember seeing something like this, right? Do you, do, you, do you remember that? I don't. But now that you say that, I immediately have a question, which is why does curl ever deallocate? Like the command line curl. I guess libcurl maybe, but like... I'm talking about libcurl. They're talking about the curl engine, right? Because the, the command line is just a front to that, right? So it needs to all be the same thing, right? Okay, fair enough. And like, you know, some people take that as evidence. It's like, you know, we shouldn't program in C. Somehow that's where their mind goes, even though I don't know why you would make that jump, right? But when you look at it, it's like, yeah, if you look at how curl does things, it's just, it's very error prone, right? Everybody allocates things all over the place willy nilly and you look at how an, an actual web request is constructed and it's just absolutely bonkers stuff like, oh, we'll you know, allocate these things and pack these things into this string and allocate that thing and put it over here, but don't free it if it's still in progress. You're like, of course. Like, yeah, you can't. C is a very general purpose programming language. So you can create the worst possible architecture that will be subject to all of these things. And I can understand why someone might reflexively go, well, the only solution here is to change to a completely different language where none of the things that the curl implementers do are possible. And you're like, okay, that's one option. <laughs> but another option would be to go like, well, actually, we can just stay and see if we want to and just not architect that way. You can architect in better ways, right? Like one arena per request? One seems arena like the per obvious... request is a very obvious solution to this problem. Yeah. Right. And you would have none of these things. And so it's one of those cases where you're just like, there are much easier solutions to the problems. And people are looking at old data that's based on really bad architectural paradigms. And they're saying, okay, you know, that's what we're going to take action on. This is also why people like, they, they, they don't understand why I don't love Rust. Right. And I'm like, things like the borrow checker are to me just examples of embracing that old bad architecture and going, how do we just prevent the things that curl got wrong from going wrong? That's just backwards. Like that is not how you think about moving forward, right? And so, you know, I haven't looked at your language, but I'm probably more on board with what you guys were doing, where it's like, look, we're just going to say, like, here's how we deal with these storage types. And that's how this language is supposed to work. And off we go. And we're trying to encourage you to write everything that way. I might be more on board with that. As opposed to the weird, like, 
we're sort of C again, but we're going to try and patch the problems of C. And I'm like, that's not the problem I have with C. Nobody who's good at C has any of those curl problems. You <laughs> learned not to do that like five years in and you're already past it, right? So when I come, I'm like, like I'm not thinking about those things. This is something that I didn't, I assume you don't know much about Zig. I know a little bit about Zig, but not much. So they have a design where basically, if you want to allocate memory on the heap, you should pass me an allocator. like, mm -hmm. And yeah. I will use that allocator to do my allocation. At the time, I was like, well, that sounds very inconvenient. And now I'm like, no, that's a really good incentive. Because it's like, A, you either shouldn't be doing that. You should find a way to make your function not allocate if it doesn't need to. That's the best. Because then you, get, you don't have to take the parameter. And, you're and also, it doesn't heap allocate. And that's probably better... Usually, unless you run out of stack space, okay, fair enough. But also, it means that if I'm using somebody's library off the shelf, I'm just like, yeah, they did all of their allocations in terms of this. So if I am arena allocating my requests in curl or whatever, these are going to do arena allocate into the same arena because I'm passing my arena to them. That sounds really great to me. And that's something that Rust, which to be clear, like I am a fan of Rust. The thing that I liked about Rust at first was just that as someone who has been scarred by manual memory management in the past, Here's a language that promises, like, we won't hurt you. You know, it's going to kind of feel like automatic memory management in terms of guarantees, if not ergonomics, because there's all these lifetimes and all this complexity. But at least it'll go fast and you won't get seg faults. And it did live up to that. And it's hard for me to go back and think, oh, I would have just, like, been fine jumping into, like, C or Zig or whatever at that point in my career and, like, being successful at that without that comforting blanket of reassurance of like, don't worry, it's going to be okay. Mm, I don't mm. know, maybe it would have been fine, but I would like to think there was some alternative mindset that I could have gotten into around like, actually, no, you were doing it wrong when you were younger. And the reputation is unearned that manual memory management is always hard and error prone. It is if you do it in this architectural style that seems to be encouraged, but there's a really simple architecture that is way better in a lot of cases, and it's not even that hard to learn about it that will just save you from 99% of those problems. So don't be so scared of it. Anyway, something that I don't like about Rust is that it doesn't have that design. It doesn't have the like, give me your allocator thing. And so actually, like, I'm not working on this, but one of the other people working on Rock, he has been working on the make a web server that does the arena allocation per request project. Mm -hmm. And he ran into this where he's like, I want to use an off-the-shelf like HTTP2 library because there's a bunch of complicated state management there that like, there that I don't want to get wrong but it allocates a bunch. And like the whole thing that we're trying to do here is to be like each request has a fixed amount of memory and we only do allocations in an arena into that. And it's like, well, now what? Now we have this like really hard problem to solve because there's this decision to, as you put it, or paraphrasing what you said, take the bad architecture and make it so that the worst outcome from that doesn't happen. Yes. Namely like, yeah, seg faults and memory corruption and whatnot. That is exactly how I see Rust. Is it's basically a thing that tried to avoid the worst case scenarios of a bad architectural mindset while maintaining the bad architectural mindset. And that just seems very counterproductive. When people ask me why I'm not excited about Rust, which they, they can't possibly believe, that's why. I'm not saying it couldn't be better to use or something, but it's like, it's not going to be enough better for me to bother learning a totally new language and getting used to a totally new language and switching all my tooling over to a totally new language for a very minor, if at all, improvement. Like, when you're talking about switching languages, it should be a massive improvement. Like, it should be very large, like 100% more productivity or more. If you're like, you can switch to a totally new language and get 10% more productive, like, what? That's not even slightly interesting to me. And I don't even see those benefits, to be honest, in something like Rust. 
you talked about in the um, the clean code, terrible performance thing. You made a really interesting point. This is kind of a tangent from the Rust topic, but you made a really interesting point, which was like, well, first of all, most people are not aware that the following the guidelines of the official clean code TM thing will reliably make your performance significantly worse. Even if they were aware of that, the natural response is like, okay, yes, but it makes my code a lot more maintainable or you know, easier to work with or whatever. And then your response to that is like, how confident are you in that? Yeah. And why are you so confident yeah. in that? It's not like you've A-B tested it or whatever. And I think that's a fair point. But at the same time, I also empathize with the fact that trying to draw really reliable conclusions about A-B tests of software productivity are extremely difficult to do well and also extremely expensive. Like if somebody, a study like that on basically pick any productivity metric you want to pick, I could poke holes in whatever methodology yeah. they did. Unless they spent like a trillion dollars on yeah. or something. So I get why more people don't have data to back it up. I totally agree with you that like if the performance is going to be worse and you're not sure that you're getting a reliability benefit, then why are you paying this cost when the benefit is unclear? Something I do appreciate, though, is when you have some sort of really strong guarantee or like ruling out something. So at this previous job, the English teaching company, when I joined, we used JavaScript. Later on, we started using Elm, which is a functional programming language that compiles to JavaScript and runs in the browser and actually tends to outperform JavaScript on a lot of benchmarks. They're like the popular JavaScript libraries of the era. Obviously, if you're compiling to something, someone can write handwrite something that is faster in all cases in the same way that you can always mm-hmm. technically handwrite assembly that's faster. But in practice, it would do very well in the benchmarks against React and whatnot. However, the guarantee part was that Elm is designed, to, like it has a very strong type checker, and it's basically like all the APIs are designed so that errors actually get handled at compile time and are not just like, there's no exception system. It's just like, if there's an error, then you basically have to handle it yeah. in some way explicitly or else you're going to get a compile error. For the first two years that we started using Elm, we didn't get a single runtime exception make it through to production. We got like 60,000 from, from our JavaScript code in that time period. Right, It's very common in JavaScript. Yeah, yeah. it happens all the time. And I would tell people this, I'm like, we don't get any runtime exceptions, and they wouldn't believe me. They would be like, well, your your error reporting is not set up right. Like, you've misconfigured something somewhere, because like, yeah, that's yeah. obviously true. And then we got our first one, and it was actually due to something that shouldn't be possible. I assume that somebody was running a browser extension that was doing something. Like, oh, what okay, happened yeah. was like a, a dropdown, like a, a browser's built-in like select sent us a value in an event that was not one of the options that was in there on the page. And we had handled that case by saying explicitly crash if this happens. Anyway, whatever. So somehow this happened. We got our first runtime exception. And suddenly people believed me. They were like, oh, no, wow. So the scoreboard is like one versus 60,000 over the same time period. That's something where it's like, I can't measure the productivity delta there. But clearly, there's a measurable delta. Even if we weren't getting a performance benefit, even if there was some performance cost to using Elm compared to JavaScript, That's a very, very direct objective benefit that I could point to. It's like, we weren't tracking down all these exceptions. Well, you did measure something. That's an actual tangible measurement that does exist in the real world, as opposed to the ones that you would ever see for these sorts of things like, oh, number of check-ins or things like that, that people do measure. I'm like, well, that's not actually measuring anything. Right. Or bug reports, it's like, well, we can't compare those directly because we don't know how active the customers are on these projects that reporting bugs or how difficult the program was. or all. So there's a lot of things that are difficult to measure in that space. But something like we are the same or something and we got our runtime errors down from 60,000 to one is a good actual thing. Yeah, guarantees like that are something that I've come to appreciate more and more. But you make a very interesting point about like, what if you're creating guarantees when actually what you should have been doing is designing your way out of having the problem that the guarantee would fix in the first place. 
Yeah, and also I would say like programmers will generally do what is easy to do in a language. Totally. The fact that there are uncountable number of articles of the form, how to like learn how to actually use the borrow checker, how to understand these error messages that it's telling you, right? That just tells me that this language is just actually not very good. I'm sorry, Rust people, but it's like, nobody should have that question. If this thing was actually a language where it was easy to write code that properly handled memory, there would be no such article. There's no article of that form for JavaScript. The articles of that form for JavaScript are performance articles <laughs> because that's what it doesn't do well. It's like how to work around the garbage collector. It's not how to prevent the garbage collector from not compiling your JavaScript program, right? So like you didn't solve this problem. What you did is you put a bunch of very esoteric, difficult to understand procedures in place so that a programmer who is doing something with a particularly bad architectural idea will have to fight through a number of things that ensure that they put in the corresponding matching cleanup in that bad architecture for the bad allocation they put in that bad architecture. And that is not getting us anywhere. This is a great example of the type of perspective that I wish we had more of in the web world, because I'm sure there's a lot of people listening who are disagreeing with what you're saying. But at least we're having a conversation about it. Yes, and all of them will be blocked tomorrow on X. Give <laughs> me the trouble right now, folks. Just send me all the usernames in bulk, and I'll just bulk block them so it saves me the trouble. You are not explaining something to me I don't know. I'm just saying that all of that work is work programmers shouldn't even be thinking about. We have better architectural ideas than that. So in the JavaScript world, a thing that mm. I am not participating in, but I'm aware is happening, is that mm. JavaScript went from a language where you would just like write it in Notepad and then FTP it up to a server, and that was your right. process, yeah. to there was these elaborate build processes that you know are extremely common now. Yeah, and like packaging things to, into bundling and libraries and yeah, all this stuff. And the tooling for that has become painfully slow. And so now that is one domain in the web world, namely like JavaScript packaging, where there's absolutely competition on performance. Right. A common thing that people have ended up on is rewrite those things in Rust. Now, based on what you just said, is it possible that a command line tool for bundling your JavaScript could come up with a way to manage memory that was simpler than a borrow checker? Yeah. I can think of one. Me too. Ever free. Yeah. Some amount of JavaScript stuff does need to happen inside editors. But again, I don't know if they're actually keeping around state or if the way that they're designing those things is like, fire it up, do your parsing, do your whatever, report your errors, and then we're done. The memory management could be so simple. Just one arena. The more I think about this stuff, it's like, I don't know. Shouldn't it be really easy? Do, do you need to introduce the compile times and go through all the learning curve of the borrow checker or something if that's your use case? Or is there some much simpler way that you could deal with this? And if so, I wonder what percentage of people who are reaching for Rust in those cases are doing so, making a really informed decision like this versus being perhaps like I was, just feeling like seg faults are terrifying and like, I don't want to risk that. So like, here's the thing that says it won't seg fault. So I'm just going to reach for that. Yeah, I mean, it's reasonable. And I mean, I guess I would also say that like, it's why I'm not excited about Rust, but it's like, well, it's better that probably that they wrote it in Rust than they wrote it in JavaScript. It probably will get faster. Oh, yeah, they are. Rust is compiled. It's a little bit more straightforward. doesn't have all the weird, like, every object is a dynamic hash table kind of feel to it that makes it hard to do good JIT for, right? So, you know, 
And that's going to be an improvement. And I don't want to tell people not to rewrite things in Rust if that's what they want. I just want people to stop trying to make me excited about it. Because I'm just like, this is not that interesting to me. It, it just really isn't. It doesn't solve a problem that I have. It's just a bunch of complexity that I don't want. But would I tell someone not to rewrite their thing from JavaScript Rush? No, like Rust is probably an improvement there. Anything with static type checking is an improvement because static type checking is very helpful. So, you know. Now, I will say something else that I really appreciate about having that as a guarantee. We do have a lot of first-time contributors contributing to the language. Mm. And there is definitely some peace of mind around like, there's a limited blast radius to like how much damage can be done if it passes the type checker and all that. Having said that, I don't have any experience with the alternative. I know there's a lot of open source projects in other languages, and I don't know if they have trivial memory management. Is it just like you look at it and you're like, wait, you called malloc. Why don't do that? Again, challenging my own assumptions based on these like couple decades of you know using garbage collected languages. I don't know what it's like in that world. Well, I think it's important not to overweight certain classes of bugs either. It's like, do you worry about the same thing about all the other metrics you might care about? Like when you accept something for a new contributor, do you worry about the fact that it might just be buggy? Sure. It doesn't do the right things. It's not going to crash, but it's going to like totally corrupt the machine code output in a way that's going to take us a really long time to find and will produce bugs in all the programs compiled by Rock. It's like, hey, they didn't seg fault. It's like, <laughs> who cares if they seg fault? It's a compiler. If it seg faults, at least we know where the bug was. It's where the seg fault <laughs> is. There's a lot worse things to be worried about than a seg fault, actually. I think people over-index on seg fault because it's very noticeable. It's a fail-loud kind of a thing. But if your goal is to ship reliable software, you have to be concerned about the bugs across the board. It can't just be SegFault. And it's like, if you're doing all of this work and the only thing that you got out of that was just that you're telling me the language probably won't SegFault, <laughs> I mean, congratulations. I don't know. It just doesn't sound that exciting to me. Like, mm -hmm. the bugs I have most of the time are indexing bugs. Almost always. They're always like you had a really complex thing, like you were trying to do like very complex mesh animation where there's bones, reference skeletons, reference skin, reference materials, reference like, and we got all this stuff working together. And you like forgot that one of these things doesn't index in exactly the right way. So you end up using the indexes for one thing on something else or they're offset or they're not remapped properly when another thing gets remapped. And so you get the triangles are connected wrong or things like that. And these are very hard things to visualize because the buggers don't really do them very well right now and that sort of stuff. And I'm like, so what did you do to solve the indexing problem? They're like, we didn't even know that was a problem. That's not even a thing we've ever even thought about. And so you get a lot of stuff like that where I'm just like, nobody is trying to solve the actual hard problems that I actually consider the things that would make a material difference to me. I don't think it's a bad idea to try and reduce seg faults, but it's just like, I feel like we should be past that by now. I actually don't quite follow the indexing problem. I'm talking about just things where you have any kind of complex scenario going on where there's like a lot of connectivity information. And the thing I pulled out because it's very common is like meshes because you typically have a lot of things where you've got like lots of different data storage, like color per vertex and tangents and tangent spaces and normals and that sort of thing. And then you have multiple positions in space. Some of them are from different poses that we exported of the same model. And maybe some of them have different vertex counts because the artists are trying to correspond them together. Managing these large data sets and like the correspondences between them and oops, in one step, you forgot that that got remapped by an edit operation and you didn't remap it here or things like that. Like there are these more complicated logical errors that you're making. And that kind of a logical mistake is more the kind of thing that I'm like, you know, what does your language do for that? And they're like, well, nothing. Yeah, I it's see. Like we, we don't think about those things and we're never gonna. And you're like, okay. So I just don't get excited. I just don't get excited by these new languages. I know everyone's excited by them. I apologize. And like I said, you'll all be blocked tomorrow on Twitter, <laughs> so it's fine. <laughs>
if you want to know why I'm not excited, it's because I can't tell you the last time that I had like a seg fault problem that I really was like, gosh, I needed something to help me find that. I just don't even, I can't, I literally can't think of it. Yeah. Years, like many years. There's a database that's written in Zig. It's a database that's specifically designed to be for like low latency financial transactions. Right. And they're like, we don't allocate in our database ever. Like we have one big static allocation, that's it. Yeah. So what's the pitch for Rust in that context? There isn't one, right? I mean, yeah. And so you're just like, why do I need this? And people are like, no, it's awesome. You don't understand. And you're like, no, they do probably understand. The people who wrote that database, they probably do understand. And they just, they don't have that problem data. That's not how... You think that because you have a lot of problems with seg faults or forgetting to free things or whatever, that they do as well. But they don't. Like, that's not how yeah. they write their code. It's okay. They're not excited about this language because it doesn't offer them anything. It's that simple. The attitude I often see is like, well, that just means they're not taking memory safety seriously enough. But I wish the attitude was more like, well, if they're able to ship a program that in practice does not have memory safety problems and they're able to do it in a much simpler way, I would like to try to learn from that and see if I can find a way to do the same thing, as opposed to defaulting to like, well, they're just being irresponsible or they're too lazy to learn how a borrow checker works or something like that. Yeah, I mean, it's just like, look, it worked for them. And like I said, the proof is generally in the market forces, right? If they're able to get that database adopted and people are using it, then then it worked. Like, obviously it worked, right? And your way of showing that this borrow checker was magically so much better would be, okay, make something that competes better, right? I mean, if this is really a material benefit where people are just going to be so much more productive because they have this borrow checker, then you should be able to demonstrate that in some way. Otherwise, it's just hypothetical, right? Maybe another way to ask this question is like, if it's 70% of CVEs you know, in the wild that Microsoft has seen are memory safety bugs, why aren't those happening in AAA games? These are very widely deployed pieces of software, enormously complex code bases. I mean, I assume they have some amount of bugs and some percentage of those bugs are memory safety related, but like, I don't hear about a lot of people complaining about their AAA games, sub faulting, or even indie games for that matter, that are you know C++ or C or whatever. Um... That might not be true. I don't know. I would have to say, do we really know? Like, because, I mean, how aggressive do you think the CVE tracking even is on, like, some of this stuff, right? Fair. I think it's easy to fall into the trap of thinking that because games happen to have some really good engine programmers who do some amazing stuff, that somehow games are doing things magically pixie dust better. But they're not. I mean, you can probably find those same CVE problems in the Unreal Engine or in Unity Core or wherever else you're looking. And really, it's just like, look, those bad coding practices, they are in games now too. You're isolated from them a little bit because there still is this demand that everything has to run at 30 or 60 frames a second. So there's always going to be core work done to ensure that that's true. But yeah, I don't know. Like, I doubt that is really that much of a counterexample, but I could be wrong. Fair enough. I mean, I don't live in that world. I'm just kind of an outside observer. Okay. I would just basically say that overcomplication is really just what all bugs come from, usually. There's a few categories of truly hard bug that are like, I was trying to do something incredibly difficult like this really intricate solver for this thing that is very difficult and had to be very optimized and all this stuff. And like, yeah, there were legit bugs in there that were hard to find and that are very complicated. But 90% of the bugs you see are just overcomplication. 
They're like, this is 50 lines worth of code of work, and it took us 15,000 to do it. Yeah. And so there's tons of bugs in it because it uses like three different library calls and nobody who was thinking about what it was actually doing in those calls and we slap them together and now it's just this thing that nobody really thought through, right? Most bugs come from that. I think at the end of the day, games have that just like everything else. That's fair. I would maybe say it as more than anything else, bugs come from complexity and often that complexity is self-inflicted. Let me rephrase it. Avoidable bugs come from overcomplication is the way to say it, right? Because I agree with you, like, very rarely, but sometimes there's something that truly is complicated, and that will have bugs because there's no way around it. But most of the time, avoidable bugs come from overcomplication, not from some other magical thing like not having a borrow checker. Yeah, like a big thing we've been dealing with in the raw compiler right now is that, so like I said, this is a functional language, and I'm, I, I'll be honest, I, this doesn't seem like your type of language. I don't think you would, like, be a user of rock. <laughs> I'm sure I wouldn't, but that doesn't matter, right? There's lots of programming styles out there. Regardless, like it's a functional language. And so a thing that's very important to us is that stylistically you use closures for a lot of things. We really want those to be cheap at runtime. So that means stack allocated by default, certainly. And then ideally, we know enough about them at compile time to like inline them and just make them go away entirely as often as possible. There's a technique for doing this called defunctionalization. And the basic idea is you take something that is in most languages like a heap allocation. It's just like a function pointer followed by a pointer to some like heap memory that's got what it captures. And then that's it. And that's like totally not amenable to analysis. LLVM won't do anything. It's an indirect call. Like it's a bad time when it comes to performance. The problem is that in general, defunctionalizing all of your closures, while it has some great runtime performance benefits, it's like there's one paper that talks about how to do it. Mm. And we're the only like industrial implementation of it that we know. And our implementation has a bunch of bugs right now. Okay. Like they're called Lambda sets. And it's like, anytime somebody comes up with a bug, it's like one of the first comments is gonna be like, yeah, this is a Lambda set problem. And they take like hours just to figure out. That's like one of the first rules of programming. It's like always been true and will always be true. And that is, if the thing that you're talking about has the word Lambda in it, it will either be slow or buggy or both. (laughs) That's like programming rule number one. You could probably have fixed this by calling it something else. We didn't think of that. Okay, we'll rename it. It'll be fixed. Yeah. On the one hand, any solution that works is going to be some amount of complex and we can't really avoid mm-hmm. that. But also, it feels like it should be simpler. Mm-hmm. We just don't know. We haven't found it. You know, like we don't, we don't know how to do that. Yeah. The insight, insight hasn't hit. Yeah, yeah. But most of the time, in my career and also like in other projects I've looked at, it feels like the reason for things being really complicated, and I'm, I'm really not a fan, the more I hear about like the terms accidental and like incidental complexity and whatnot, it feels like that's not quite the right way to say it. I like to think of it as self-inflicted, I like, because it was like mm, okay. you had a choice and you chose to you know, go with complexity. And now in hindsight, feeling more confident about memory management, I could look at my choice to do this compiler in Rust and say, that was some complexity that I chose. I didn't have to. I could have chosen something else to write the compiler in. And I didn't feel like self-confident enough that I would be able to pull it off. Going back to like ORMs, I think that's a really good example of opting into complexity that you didn't have to opt into that's really pervasive in the web world. There's a bunch of different ways you could do this, but people aren't starting with, well, what's the simplest thing that will be the fastest? And then like, if we're going to deviate from that, how? Like one thing that I always hear people talk about is like, quote unquote, routing. And routing is essentially just like, I get a URL string. And it's like, which function do I want to call to handle this? I thought you meant routing like packet routing. I'm like, okay. No, no. Okay, yeah. That's right. But like people say like, what's the routing story for this? And it's like the answer is like, it's a string. Yeah. And you're just going to look at the parts of the string. That's just such an easy thing to solve in any number of ways. 
I don't know why that's something that we would have a significant conversation around, but it is because ergonomics and how something looks and how something feels is really elevated so dramatically far away from other considerations like how simple is it? How many dependencies does it introduce? What's the performance like? All these things that I think are much bigger drivers of how overall high quality the software is in the end than how does it look on the screen? I mean, I agree, obviously. Like when you divorce yourself from thinking about what the computer is actually doing and instead you're thinking in terms of the synthetic ideas that are what you think of programming as being, such as routing or database or whatever the other like fictional construct that we put on top of the machine that we've now agreed is a thing and we're going to name it, when that's the only context you have for thought, why wouldn't you ask about the routing? I mean, as far as you know, it's as complicated or interesting as anything else because you don't necessarily know, you know, the structure of an HTTP packet. Right? I mean, you don't necessarily know that that's not interesting and it really doesn't matter and that it's already pretty inefficient. And the last thing we should probably be doing is adding more strings to the mix, but here we go. <laughs> right. And so I don't know. It's another symptom of the same problem. Right. One of my favorite videos of yours is like, I think it's the 30 million line of code problem. Oh, yeah. Which was a, a, now probably an understatement. It's probably more like the 100 million line program now, uh, problem now. Right. But, yeah. And uh, I mean, that, that was like the audience there was like hardware people. Um, yeah. But I mean, you made a really interesting point about like, you know, if you're looking at like, what does it take to serve a web request? How many lines of code go into that? And it's like millions and millions and millions, like operating system, browser, you know, all this stuff. Um, And uh, what's weird to me is that somehow we don't have a general mindset of trying to peel back layers. Right. And like trying to, like number of layers is not a metric that people care about or think about. Size of layer either, which is even worse. Yeah, right. The reason that I, I called this thing platforms and applications, like the, the term I chose platform was intentional. In the talk, you, you talked about like the Amiga days where on a floppy disk, you would have your program and also the entire operating system. Like those were just the same thing. You stuck it in and it booted up off of, you know, your, your custom bespoke OS right. that was just for that yep. one game or whatever. Yeah. And it was like, you know, operating systems back then were so simple that literally everyone did it. Yeah. The idea that I like about this platform design is that like it to me feels like a path to getting rid of layers because today this is a game engine level of abstraction or a framework level of abstraction. But critically, you're building your application on top of that. And really, it's just like, hey, how do I do malloc? That's all I need. Some way to allocate bytes in memory. If I have that as a low level primitive, Everything else below that, and the, the platform also is responsible for providing all the I.O. operations. So those are not in the standard library for this language. Those are actually part of what you're building on. If you have that as a really hard boundary there, whoever's building that thing can eliminate as many layers as they want, including the operating system. If we end up with a world in which a bunch of people have built rock apps to do music player or like chat apps, right, yeah. all these things that are currently built on Electron, in that world, like you literally could have it so that somebody who maybe starts off with, okay, I implemented this with all these like layers of libraries or whatever, they can rip all those out and the application still works because the application is only depending on malloc and like a couple other very, very small number of primitives that the platform provides. Well, I mean, and that already happened, right? Like what you're describing is what the web was, right? It's just a very bad version of that. But now you get things like a Chromebook, which is somebody basically saying like, the web is a platform. It defines all the things you need to specify an application. So we're just going to make a thing that just runs that. And like, yeah, again, it's great. Unfortunately, the web is a very bad platform, but you could imagine a not bad platform offers exactly the same opportunities that a Chromebook is taking advantage of just without the suck. So 
it's a totally plausible thing. And we have examples of people having done it. Just unfortunately, the platform wasn't so good. Fingers crossed. I think I think we were doing we we're, were on the road to doing a good job with this, but I guess we'll find out in practice. But like making those boundaries drawn in a way so that like unlike the web, they're not hyper specified and like millions of pages of spec. It's right. just like if somebody wants to re-implement it and do a much better job, or the hardware gets better, they want to change how it works under the hood. There is a path to doing that where the application keeps working. It's just that the giant mountain of stuff that it's built on got hopefully a lot smaller and then smaller and smaller. And the application just, you know, can keep working. And you don't need to be like, well, I would love to make a new operating system on new hardware that's much simpler than existing operating systems, but there's no applications right, for it, yes, so nobody's exactly. going to use the thing. Yeah. I would love to have this language be a way to actually help with that problem in the same way that the web does. But unfortunately, like you said, no one can build a new browser. Exactly. Like All things you're saying are what the web is was supposed to kind of do in its second incarnation. Ideally. All of that stuff was the kind of the goal. And unfortunately, it, it was done so poorly, right, that it doesn't help. So right. yeah, it's like, absolutely. Unfortunately, it's like, yeah, it's about, you You got to execute. And here's the tough one. Executing is hard, That, but, the, but you know, that's more about being smart and doing a lot of work. The other one is adoption. Yes. And that's the big one that like, it's like, how do you do it? And I don't know. I'm optimistic that adoption is something you can learn how to do and be successful at. Yeah, maybe. I mean, there is definitely an element of luck. Element of luck, also an element of skill. There is an element of promotion. You mentioned in a, another podcast, you're like, look, given my own personal preferences, I would just go like hang out, like just program my computer and not promote my course or whatever. That's right. But it's like, yeah. you got to do that if you want people to actually know about it and like use it, right? Like adoption requires promotion at some level. But at the end of the day, to me, the prize is worth it. It's like if we can actually succeed at making something that's really nice, that makes programming not only a better experience, but also a simplifying force and also a pathway to make the software that we use every day better. I would love that. That's absolutely worth doing a hard thing. Lots of people have tried and have not been successful, but I am optimistic that we will pull it off. Well, optimism is probably beneficial because if you weren't, you wouldn't go do all of the promotion and all the stuff that you have to do. So you, you have to kind of keep the outlook that like, maybe it's a long shot, but I think we can do it is kind of required. All right, Casey, thank you so much. This has really been a fantastic conversation. Performance-aware programming at computerenhanced.com. Please check it out. Casey, you don't even need to say that. I will say that because it's excellent. Why, thank you. I appreciate that. Any other closing thoughts or words? No. Uh, thanks for the great discussion. And uh, I apologize to all the Rust fans. <laughs> but yeah, I do appreciate everyone out there who's doing this stuff. I appreciate that you're making Rock. I appreciate that they made Rust. I Because we're never going to get a language I am excited about if people aren't making new languages, right? So it's like, I come across as being negative on those things because I'm tired of people bothering me about it, <laughs> but that's just me venting my frustration. I'm actually delighted that somebody made Rust and that people are using it because it's like, more new languages is the only way we will get to something that I'm ever going to like anyway. If there's no new languages, of course I'm not going to get something I'm excited about. So I'm actually happy that people are getting some languages they're excited about and I'm hoping that I'll get some languages I'm excited about someday too. <laughs> so if people are still listening at this point, I just wanted to say that. Other than that, uh, yeah, great discussion. Thanks for chatting. It's been really cool. And I hope that your rock project goes well. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs>